my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredis, a journey through the books for people who have made the journey before, brought to you by people who have made the journey many times. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger, definitely some disgust, and I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. George R. R. Martin has said before, and will say again, this series was designed to be reread. We're your tour guides on this reread journey, but even we doing this full-time can't catch everything. It's a group effort. If you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions. You can also do so in advance by joining us on one of our social media platforms like Facebook, Flick, Discord, or Slack. And you should be able to find links to that in the episode description, whether you're listening to this afterwards on podcast form or watching the live or after live video. <laughs> what do we call that? The after when it's not live anymore? Just not live, just recorded. I don't know. Anyway, also make sure to check out the Isle of Faces podcast, Joe Buckley's Scraps and Scrolls editions, additional Valerie Rita's content lined up exactly with the chapters we're doing each week. And Nina Friel's Tumblr, Good Queen Alley, that's with one L, where she goes into greater detail on a lot of the thoughts that we borrow here in our episodes. Join us on Patreon as well to help support us Support the show going forward, support our back catalog, support our future catalog, support our current catalog. All those things, we would appreciate it. This week, we have a whole lot of Lannister and some Sansa, a whole lot of Purple Wedding, starting with Tyrion 7, the one with sex in a skull, aka the Bachelorette Shea edition. Sansa 4, the one where Sansa finds out, aka the gang gives glorious gifts to Jaw. Tyrion 8, the actual purple wedding, a.k.a. the one where Joffrey dies. Sansa 5, Sansa gets on a boat because of the implication, a.k.a. the one where Dantos dies. Jamie 7, the one with sex by a corpse, a.k.a. the Bachelord Commander Jamie edition. Yeah. Quick notes on some themes and patterns. Especially given our chapter titles, the way we do them, it's hard to miss that bookending of Tyrion 7 and Jamie 7. Both chapters involve sex in a strange place. No, not like the back of a Volkswagen. And both chapters involve marrying someone off who doesn't want it, Shay and Jamie. Although in Shay's case, Tyrion doesn't actually bring it up. It's just in his head. We also had a Tyrion slash Sansa slash Tyrion slash Slanch Sansa stretch. Whoa, that's hard to say. It's like Irish wristwatch stretch in a class of kings during the Battle of the Blackwater. Tyrion, Sansa, Tyrion, Sansa. So we're getting that again. But 
It's similar because, well, you could argue that this is a bit like a battle, as it turns out. But in, in a lot of ways, it's not that different or not that similar because the Battle of the Blackwater and the Purple Wedding. Yeah, I mean, you can make some parallels, but ultimately they're pretty darn different events. But they are climactic near the end of the book-ish. So that's something they have in common. But the m- most in common part of it is the, the way these things are delivered to us. They're both witnessing the same event from different places. But at the Purple Wedding, it's even closer because they're both witnessing the same event while sitting next to each other. Likewise, the chapter right before it, Sansa and Tyrion are both sitting next to each other when they're watching Joffrey receive his wedding gifts. But then they diverge greatly where things are at the start of the Winds of Winter. He's outside Marine, you know, Slaver's Bay, and she's at the Gates of the Moon in the Vale. Huh. Now, we haven't had a Sansa chapter since chapter 29 but she's here today with chapters 60 and 62. And we still have two more, including the final one of the book, not counting the epilogue. And these are her, those two, the two at the end there, are her two longest of the book. So the bulk of Sansa, the largest Sansa stretch of the, of the book is at the end. Now Sansa's transitioning like the rest of her siblings. Bran has just crossed the wall and finished his clash arc, or his storm arc. And off page, Rickon has arrived or will arrive at Skagos soon. We don't exactly know the timeline of his journey, but it should be around the same. Arya will soon cross the sea to Bravos, And Rob, well, he's just crossed on, period. John, not truly Sansa's sibling, but he's also transitioning back to the wall. And soon, he'll be Lord Commander. That's a pretty big transition. But it's not just Stark's transitioning, is it? Danny's transitioning to Slaver's Bay and a major switch in who she's getting advice from, right? Meaning Barristan instead of so much Jorah. Davos is soon heading north himself. You know, we just mentioned that with Rickon and Stannis to the wall, etc. As for the Lannisters, it's a similar case. Jamie returns to King's Landing for the first time since accosting Ned Stark in the streets outside Littlefinger's brothel. That was a while ago. Tyrion's split from his family begins to fully form in Tyrion 8 when Cersei blames him for Joff's death and the transition will complete after he shoots his father. And of course, that'll be Tywin's last transition, which in turn creates a huge wave of change for Cersei. Tywin's death is a massive change for all the Lannisters, let alone Westeros. And of course, Cersei's having smaller but still large transitions right here with the return of Jaime and arguably as big as anything, the death of Joffrey, which are both here today. With so many powerful and important characters going through so much upheaval, surely there's some for other characters as well, both the powerful ones like the Tyrells and Littlefinger, but also the ones with very little agency at all, like Tommen, a conundrum of power dynamics and that he's about to be the king, but wields no real power, right? Or like Shay, who ostensibly has the freedom to go wherever she likes, to choose however she wants to live, but in reality, she has little choice other than to play along, give them what they want, or else. So we start with Tyrion 7, the one with sex and a skull, aka the Bachelorette Shay edition. The first day of the new year and the new century, and the day of the royal wedding, and his last day with Shay. His last day of... Well, it's his last day of a lot of things, really. He's going to be arrested at the end of the day. He's awake early today on his last normal-ish day. It's his shortest chapter of the book. As Joe Buckley notes, it's similar formatting to The Red Wedding in that some of the shortest chapters in the book are, are close to around. Like, they're like satellite chapters to this climactic event. 
The first line is, Tyrion dressed himself in darkness, listening to his wife's soft breathing from the bed they shared. Maybe if you're looking for symbolism there, the darkness maybe indicates that he has no idea what's about to happen today. He's in the dark about all the huge life-changing events that are not good for him. As Tyrion creeps through the night and down through the castle, we find out everything is kind of going well for him on the surface, not beneath the surface. But on the surface, he's moved back into some decent rooms. You know, everyone loves living above the kitchen. He's further away from Cersei. He's managed to sneak Shay into the household. He can have these rendezvous, as, as Sansa will, will think. He likes to get up early and often goes down to have morning bread and things like that. But <laughs> he's really going to see Shay. So that's not bad, really. You know, for a, a person, uh, it's not terrible considering where he thought he was going to be, considering he thought Cersei was out to murder him and all these other things. Let's be reminded of the large disparity between a Clash of Kings Tyrion and a Storm of Swords Tyrion. He was focused and confident in the Clash of Kings. Here he's so very conflicted, constantly arguing with himself, correcting himself, having inner thoughts that he then challenges and says, no, I don't want to feel that way. Uh, or back, going back and forth, things like that. Now, Master Coin is a highly important role, but it's a minor part of a narrative. And his role as hand is both more powerful and more central to the narrative. He's privy <laughs> to some of his father's plans and not very involved in the actual decisions when he's included. To be sure, he has far more agency than Sansa and Shay and, and many, if not most others. But in terms of the tone of his chapters, there's far more focus on his relationships and on him being an observer of the Game of Thrones when he was so recently a central player. Now he's, this is what I was talking about with where he's becoming a bit of a, a sitcom trope or a TV drama trope. He's mired in, a, in numbers and a loveless marriage. He's like some accountant with a wife who hates him. <laughs> and he's got sharp wit that's now bitter sarcasm. You know, in a lot of ways, he's like Catelyn. To be sure, Catelyn's trauma is far greater, was far greater. But I'm speaking again to the tone of their chapters because in Clash, Cat was vibrant and active and hopeful and was moving around and doing stuff. And then she just kind of had to park it at River Run and the twins until the end there. And Tyrion's been parked at King's Landing just having politics pass him by. Tyrion understands the obvious to some degree that Sansa is suffering and traumatized as well. But she doesn't have this feeling of hopelessness that he has because she has a chance to escape. And that can change everything for her. He recognizes, too, this awful conundrum that his family's victory is tied to her family's suffering and thus her suffering. But he's not feeling victorious because, well, as much as we like to say Tyrion has a lot of dark to him, he's not a monster in you know, all things considered. Monsters wouldn't have these kind of sympathetic thoughts, but he is very problematic in a lot of ways. And here's one of his takes, quote. She still went nightly to the godswood to pray, and Tyrion wondered if she were praying for his death. She had lost her home, her place in the world, and everyone she had ever loved or trusted. Winter is coming, warned the Stark words, and truly, it had come for them with a vengeance. But it is high summer for House Lannister. So why am I so bloody cold? Well, the obvious being your relationships and your family, Tyrion. Perhaps, too, he has a sense of how much blood that his family's incurred, meaning he knows that there has to be a reckoning 
for all of all these Lannister victories. There's too many enemies still out there, too many broken traditions. Stability is a thing that is earned. The stability is a thing that you realize you have, not something you declare you have. You have to earn it. Another thing about Tyrion is Tyrion has a difficult time with any sort of trying to make other people feel well. Other people, he, he, he struggles with being sensitive to other people in, in the action phase of it. He understands in his mind that people, when people are hurt or when people are, are feeling unloved or, or feeling lost, but he's someone that has been scorned and insulted his whole life. He doesn't have practice with receiving that kind of kindness Thus, it's hard for him to find the right words and know how to handle it because it's not something that's ever been given to him. Shay says, I love you in this chapter. And some people will later call that a betrayal. And I don't think that's true. I mean, I don't think she actually loves him. She's a sex worker and she's doing her job. But Tyrion doesn't, isn't fooled by that either. I mean, he wants to believe it, but in his mind, he knows it's not true. So I don't think this is a betrayal and certainly nothing bigger than any betrayal Tyrion has done to her. It's difficult because society, as it is set up in Westeros, only allows for so many avenues for women, especially lowborn women like her. And this is just part of her survival instinct and being a, you know, being a good sex worker by, by what she believes that is. Nina suggests this chapter is, is, is Tyrion at some of his least sympathetic and Joe Buckley says the same. So both of our <laughs> contributors independently kind of said the same thing. And, and I kind of tend to agree. Even though he's trying, again, he's just not very good at this. And also he's, well, he's drunk throughout all these chapters. That's, not an excuse, but it is a description of his state of mind. And as we go through these chapters today, he's only going to get drunker and drunker. <laughs> so yeah, that's, well, that is how that works, right? Keep drinking, you get drunker. Hmm, hmm, yeah. You needed me to tell you that. Winter is coming for House Lannister and sooner than Tyrion realizes, perhaps. <laughs> In hours, <laughs> not just weeks or days or years. George tells us his own view on it this whole business of, of monsters and maidens, I think, tyrannly, jokingly suggests she's calling him a monster and she retorts, no more than I'm a maiden. But Shay is a maiden in the sense that young and relying on others for protection, right? Not literally a maiden, but she's figuratively one. And Tyrion is not really a monster, but he is one in some ways figuratively. To others, he appears monstrous. He gets treated like one. Like I said, inwardly, he's not evil, but he's spiraling. He's traumatized, doesn't have much hope. And people in that state of mind can often, are more likely to do hmm, things they'll regret, things other people will regret, etc. In his own way, the elite noble class version, Tyrion's a broken man, right? We talked about the broken Karstark foot soldiers and, and cavalry who are much lower on the social chain. So the Tyrion is, that, is this version of that, but the elite noble version. It's more passive. He's drinking and stressing and working. And yeah, it's that familiar story. And then they pushed him too far. <laughs> now, here's something interesting, backing up a little bit to a, an, a, a very little mentioned character that's interesting. Tyrion hires a woman named Brella. Back, remember when Tyrion was complaining to his father? He's like, I'm pretty sure my, my wife's maids are spying on me. Like, Tyrion, just 
fire them. <laughs> and so this is an exa- this is the the uh, the fallout, not the fallout, but the extension of that story. Tyrion hired someone named Brella because she ran Renly's household and and had quote given her a deal of practice at being blind, deaf, and mute, which is not only a hint towards Renly's sexuality, because what you know, what would she have to be so blind, deaf, and mute about? <laughs> but it's interesting too that this is. Varus's suggestion. Varus suggested to Tyrion to hire this woman because of her ability to stay quiet. So we have to wonder if A, Brella was a source for Varus inside Renly's camp, and or B, is he a source now? Uh, or is she a source for him now? A pro- if one, then probably the other. And Joe Buckley also points out the description of Brella being mute. <laughs> not literally mute, but practicing it, right? It's not literal. Is kind of a, a call to little uh, Varus's little birds and their tongues being cut out. Now, Brella's tongue was not cut out, uh, which means she's probably not a little bird because she wouldn't be able to talk. But Varus, you know, obviously not all of Varus's spies are the tongue cut out little bird variety. So still, it's maybe a way to link, it, link her to Varus. Tyrion having sex with Shay on the morning of the wedding is a bit of a nod to Cersei, who had sex with Jamie on the morning of her wedding to Robert. Good catch by Nina there. Tyrion considers placing Shay in Shatayas, which is kind of another nod to Tyrion and Tywin, because as we've discussed in the past, the tunnel to Shatayas was almost certainly built by Tywin. And this is just yet another connection or similarity where the son of Tywin is hiding his, what he thinks needs to be hidden in the same place. Tyrion also doesn't grasp the irony of that he's going to marry Shay to Talad the Tall because he thinks that's going to keep Cersei off of her without considering that, besides the fact that they might not get along, which is always the case with an arranged marriage, you never know. But what if Talad and Shay just talk about what uh, Tyrion had her do? I mean, Talad would probably be like, oh, I'm so sorry you had to be married to that guy. Like, almost any man being married to Shay is going to say that, even if they don't know it's true or not. And she'll probably be like, oh, yeah, he did this, he did that. Kind of like the thing she says in trial, kind of because she, because she has to. In trial, it's almost surely more of a direct threat. But still, new relationship, yeah, I mean... If, if Talad wants to know about Tyrion, she's probably going to tell him. So that's <laughs> not the safest thing. But what's he going to do? I mean, I'm not advocating that he kill her or something, even though he does kill her. And so, and what is Shay supposed to do? What are her options here? I, I, that I have nothing to say because what options does she have? They're very, very limited. Varys puts his soft, slippered foot down with Tyrion on the issue of Shay. I think he's being honest when he describes his bafflement with Tyrion and his relationship with her. He tells him straight up that he's not going to lie to Cersei about Shay. He says, look, they're going to kill me if they find out I'm over, overly favoring you. I have to give Cersei something from time to time. I have to be useful to them. Legitimately useful. Like, actually useful. <laughs> not just pretend useful. If I'm going to lie to them, it has to be for a really good reason. And come on, man. This is not a good reason. This is not some tragic romance that you're asking me to protect. Yeah, she's in danger, but this is a transactional relationship and she can be safe elsewhere. 
You cannot tell me you can't stand to live without this girl. You cannot tell me that you're the only one that can protect her. You can't tell me that you're like Littlefinger telling Sansa, I'm the only one who can protect you. That's why Varys is like, I don't get it. And that's why he refers to his loss of his man. He's like, maybe that explains it. <laughs> maybe it's it's got to be you thinking with your second brain down there. And Tyrion, well, he can't exactly deny that, can he? We know Tyrion's feelings for Shay have gone too far. He himself reminds himself of that. And it's kind of the same point Varys is making. <sighs> I mean, Tyrion, can Tyrion really claim to love Shay? I don't, I don't think so. I think he loves the idea of her. He loves the idea of people loving him. And at the wedding, he's understandably jealous of all the normal loving couples he sees. And yeah. What about this needing to be saved from the dragon's maw thing? That's the, the joke, the, the game that she's playing with him. It's interesting because this could be seen as Tyrion Targaryen evidence because she's, he's worried about saving her from the lions, the lions of, her fa- of his family, meaning Cersei and Tywin. But it's going to be him that kills her. And whether he's actually a dragon or not, that's who he's going to be working for or at least associated with. So it kind of works one way or the other in that sense. But he isn't, he hasn't switched to Danny's side even yet now, let alone when he kills Shay in Tywin's bedroom. So I don't know. It, it's a little, maybe a stretch to call that a Tyrion Targaryen evidence. But we'll, if it does turn out to be true, then we'll look back at the scene and, and it'll have a lot more meaning. It'll, it will look like evidence in retrospect. Here's a quote about this, those dragon skulls. The skulls of the Targaryen dragons were emerging from the darkness around them, black amidst gray. Day comes too soon. A new day. A new year. A new century. I survived the green fork in the Blackwater. I can bloody well survive King Joffrey's wedding. (laughs) Yeah. Will you? Yes, you can bloody well survive King Joffrey's wedding. Barely, but Joffrey won't. And of course, it's fitting that this day starts with the dragon skulls because as I just said, it seems that he'll be siding with them soon enough. It's like, the symbolic of the new year. Now there's a error from a Game of Thrones, maybe an error. I think it's an error. And I think George is kind of nodding towards this error by repairing it here. Quote. Valerian, he thought. Or was it Fagar? One dragon skull looked much like another. This could also be the subtle hint to the switch Varys was supposedly able to carry off between Fagon and some you know, random baby. One dragon skull looked very much like another. One dragon looked very much like another. That's kind of what Illyrio will say to Tyrion. One, to, as far as the Golden Company is concerned, one dragon is very much like another. But what I was referring to in terms of the error is that way back in the early Game of Thrones, Tyrion notes that the skull of Meraxes is much larger than Vagar's, which does not make any sense because Meraxes died way, way, way younger than Vagar. Now, so it's possible, but it just doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense. There's some juxtaposition in this chapter too, isn't there? There's talk of Sansa and the Godswood, of winter coming, and then the depths of the Red Keep and dragon skulls. So yeah, we've got the nice uh, kind of fire and ice back and forth or the theme of, of dragons and Valyrian energy and old gods energy. Yeah, the, the interesting how George likes to use colors for some of these big events. Now, of course, to be clear, the purple wedding is a fan term, not an in-world term. The red wedding, however, is, and so is the Battle of Blackwater and the Green Fork. And of course, Tyrion, Green Fork, Blackwater, those are the colors of his eyes. Not sure if that's intentional, but it sure is cool. And then with purple, well, he's heading off to royalty. 
And with Tree Girl, she points out that it's too bad for Talad the Tall <laughs> that this Shay marriage didn't happen. Because what's going to happen pretty soon to Talad is, who, by the way, is maybe a joke, tall lad, tall Talad the Tall. Especially eh. as compared to Tyrion yeah. Tiny. Yeah, of course Tyrion would pick him, right? <laughs> well, the reason it's too bad for him is that Talad is one of the ones falsely accused of being Marjorie's lover and gets thrown in the dungeon under Kyburn's care. So Talad is currently in Kyburn's dungeon in the Black Cells. So yeah, I think he'd rather be married to Shay. Shannon0893 says, or was Brella a source for Littlefinger or both Littlefinger and Varys? Good question. Yes, little. it's possible. Both is, is absolutely possible. Uh, there's a way of spy people, spy masters can identify who is close to the information. For example, Dantos. It's obvious that Dantos has access to Sansa. That's something that Littlefinger identified. I would guess Varys is aware, <laughs> even, though, even if he doesn't know exactly what they've been saying. I'm sure he's aware of Sansa's going out to the godswood. So any spy master type person, anyone thinking along those lines can see the same thing and say, oh, this person has access. Any, anyone can look and see that Patchface is close to Stannis and unusually so. Things like that. So these maids are in the same category. They work really close to these people, these really powerful people. They have unusual access to them. So yeah, whether or not Brella worked for both, there's a decent chance that Littlefinger wanted her to work for him, right? These that's the the position that women like that and men are in are in. Matt Reese suggests how could they get Maraxi's skull from Dorne since that's where she fell. It was returned? Yeah, there was a peace delegation there. When Princess Maria at last died at last passed away in 13 AC, her throne passed to her son, the aged and failing Prince Nymor. Nymor had enough of war and sent a delegation by led by his daughter, Princess Daria, to King's Landing, and they brought the skull of Maraxi's. Cool. That was the quote from the book. Excellent. Thanks for that, Nina. Perfect. That's, that clears that up. All right. Well, that is it for Tyrion 7. Like we said, a shortish chapter. Sansa 4. The one where Sansa finds out, aka the gang gives glorious gifts to Joff. Honestly, it isn't really the one she finds out. She found out off page. It's just the first one we've had since then. And well, she was spared the worst details. It's unfortunate or maybe fortunate that we didn't get her POV during the reveal of the Red Wedding or finding that out, I, I suppose there's enough people that reacted to it and we got enough stark reactions to it. Well, I, I don't think we really needed another one, but it's not like we can just gloss over Sansa's reaction either. So you got to really, it still needs to be handled one way or another. It's unclear if what happens with the direwolves though. Sansa's disconnection from Lady is maybe not a permanent severing entirely from the wolf network, for lack of a better word. Maybe she felt some of the same echoes that her siblings felt. Um, maybe it would have been fainter. Maybe she could still feel a connection to Grey Wen because all the wolves were connected. Maybe her connection depended entirely on Lady, but maybe there's still some tendrils of, of out there in the ether that would enable her to feel these things or at least sense them on some level. Here's the first line of the chapter. That was such a sweet dream, Sansa thought drowsily. Mm, that's interesting, isn't it? She's past the point of having the bad dreams or she has had them and maybe this is a standout for her. It's like, wow, I actually had a good dream for once. It's also maybe a meta way to remind us that we haven't seen her POV in 31 chapters. It's like she's been 
Sleeping Beauty, maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, just as the Tyrion chapter immediately before this one begins with him noting that Sansa is dreaming, this one begins with her waking up from a dream because it's the same moment. This is the first, same first day of the year. It's the same day of, first day of the year 300 after the conquest. The day of Joffrey and Marjorie's wedding. A day that will live in infamy. But the infamy isn't until later in the day, right? And to her, it's going to be the day she wound up in Littlefinger's clutches. So it'll live in infamy for different reasons for her, but some of the same reasons. She was already thinking past the wedding to her escape, though. That's the point here, that the wedding to her is like just a thing to get through so she can get on to getting on the hell out of there. She thinks to herself, her torments would soon be ended one way or the other. Yeah, that's a really good way to, as Joe puts it, ratchet up the tension for this wedding. We've already got Tyrion's concerns over a family tiff. And well, Sansa's putting it all on the line here. This is, she knows that how badly this could go. She doesn't seem to have any naivete about what happens if she gets caught. She's certainly still naive about plenty of things because she's young. She's 13. But she's very aware that failure here is likely means her death. Look at this really, really nice quote here. Wispy banners swirled from atop their towers and reached for the fast-fading stars. The sun was coming up behind them, and she watched them go from black to gray to a thousand shades of rose and gold and crimson. Soon the wind mushed them together, and there was only one castle where there had been two. That's pretty cool. There's a couple people that weighed in on that one with the interpretations of it. One that I particularly like came from Archmaester Emma, suggesting that it's the marriage of the two houses being shown here, castles coming together. And But Brella, a minute later, walks in and is like, oh, this ca- it's a castle, huh? It looks ruined because <laughs> the castle does look ruined. So it's, it's saying that the merging of these two houses is, is either creating ruin for the realm or for them both individually or all of that. It's just creating ruin. It's not a good thing. As for the beginning of the feast itself, Sansa confirms for us that it's Joffrey that she fears because, well, he's threatened to come rape her. I mean, of course she's afraid of that because who's going to stop him? It's a bit sad and a bit ironic that her and Tyrion share something so strong. I mean, they've been struggling to communicate. They don't get along they, uh, for obvious reasons, but they actually have several things they could connect over if they knew that they were both having these thoughts. This is a great catch by Joe that if they, they could bond over how scared they are of Joffrey or how dangerous he is. Of course, yeah. A couple other thoughts on that scene. Nina points out, too, the, the colors there. You've got the r- crimson color there for Lannister, and gold is Lannister also, but the Tyrells have gold, too. It's, it's gold on green is their rose color. Green is associated with the Tyrells, but gold is very much theirs as much as it is Lannister's. So that is uh, that makes the maybe conceals the imagery a little bit because they share that color, but it also works for showing them coming together. Speaking of these colors and themes and and houses, Nina points out the blatant use of the Lannister wedding cloak. Joanna Lannister's wedding cloak is what Joffrey is given to Marjorie there, which we all know that it should be a Baratheon cloak. This is Robert's quote-unquote son. 
after all, and if it's not Robert's son, then this kid has no right to the throne, right? So, but Cersei's just not keeping these appearances up anymore. They're just like, yep, it's all Lannister now. That's who's in charge. The Baratheons are gone. They're, they're, they're traitors. We're not putting the stags up here. So it's a little of both. It's a little of the, we're pushing our way in here. We're, we're, we're the big 800-pound, well, lion, not gorilla. But also the Baratheons, to be fair, are kind of out because of Renly and Stannis and all that. Nina did a great write-up on the gifts here and how there's a lot to be said about each one. I recommend checking out her blog for, for deeper thoughts on this. I, I would love to go into greater detail. Jalbarjo gives Golden Heart Bow which is a really, which is a very much a prominent part of Summer Islander culture. It's a weapon of war. And maybe this is uh, following up of what Jalabar was wanting from Robert. He kept asking, hey, Robert, help me take my kingdom back. And you can go hang out down there with all the Summer Islander girls. It's, it's great parties down there. <laughs> Joffrey isn't interested in the partying part, but this maybe is a hint of I mean, it pro almost certainly is. What else does Jalabarjo want? He wants his kingdom back, so now he's going to pitch the new king. So by showing uh, weapons from his kingdom, he's trying to tempt Joffrey into being interested in his kingdom, and maybe that will lead to taking an interest in that campaign. Tanda Stokeworth gives a pair of supple riding boots. This is a real meta. The Stokeworths, well, remember what happened to Lolly Stokeworth during the riot? She was well, gang raped and assaulted and, well, that's awful. And she wasn't protected enough. So riding boots connected to, well, they should have protected her better. And it's referring to this riding event where everyone ran off and left lollies behind because, well, they didn't think as, her as, as, as important as Sansa and Joffrey and the other higher-born nobles there. Kevin Lannister gives a magnificent red leather jousting saddle Nina suggests this is a very perfect place for Kevin's gift to land within the social hierarchy. I like this take a lot. Kevin's role is to be a supporter. He's the man that helps his brother, that's always there for him. He's his right-hand man. And this is a really important piece of being in the field, a campaigner. You're the knight. You're secure in your seat. You're held firmly in place. And that's crucial in battle. Oberyn Martell, his is a little more telling. He gives a, rot, a red gold brooch wrought in the shape of a scorpion, which calls to mind the incident at Sandstone where the scorpions were dropped on the Lord Tyrell, who was appointed to rule Dorne after Dar Daemon I, sorry, Daron I conquered Dorne. Dar Daemon, uh, Daron the Young Dragon, that is. Now, Oberyn himself fostered at Sandstone. Mm-hmm, yeah. So he's familiar with that story, perhaps more than anyone. And, well, he would know. This is kind of a similar concept of the wrong house is being put in front, in charge here, and they're going to encourage some poisonings and scorpions and things like that. They're going to encourage killing the people at the top. Nina calls it a jeweled threat. I like that, a jeweled threat. Almost a way of saying, I don't recognize your authority over, over Dorne. Just like they didn't recognize the Tyrell's authority over Dorne back in the day. Adam Marbrand, maybe a similar-ish gift to Kevin Lannister in that it's, the Kevin's was a saddle and these are spurs, silver spurs. A little bit reminiscent of Lenor Velaryon of all people getting 
knighted a fortnight before wedding Rhaenyra Targaryen because, well, they thought it would be improper for the queen to marry a prince who's not a knight. And this is kind of similar. They're not actually knighting him, but it's creating the image of knighthood, giving him the tools of knighthood, giving him all the accoutrement that a knight would have. And it's kind of on a silver platter because they're silver spurs, which is very appropriate because he's not doing anything to earn it. So it's being handed to him. And Adam Marbrand, kind of like Kevin Lannister, is very much serving a role. He's a part of something larger and he knows his place. And that's one of the reasons Tywin likes him. (laughs) He's a lot like Kevin. Mathis Rowan gives a red silk tourney pavilion. Not long before, it was Rowan who was disgusted at Tywin's hypocrisy over the deaths of Elia and her children and how he would blame other people for it when it was almost certainly directly him, if not almost directly him. And this could be a reference to that disgust because what happened was when Tywin brings the mutilated corpses of the two baby Targaryens, he had them wrapped in crimson Lannister cloaks so that the blood did not show so badly. And that, you know, made it look less brutal. And so this is maybe a nod to that of all this red silk tourney pavilion is a, a way to hide all the blood that the Lannisters spilled to reach the top here, including the blood of Robert himself. Pack a man who loved tournaments. <laughs> Paxter Redwine, a beautiful wooden model of the war galley of 200 oars. Now this is blows all the other gifts out of the water, except for the Valyrian steel blade. And of course, we all are partial to the book, but let's be honest, this book is not worth as much as a royal war galley. Good Lord. 200 oars. I mean, this is a huge gift. And of course, this is a man whose son's in captivity. And now I believe... This got them freed. I think he. I think he had one of them. They sent one back, and the other was captive. And I think maybe after this, soon after this, he's, he gets the other one back. Now, of course, Tyrion and Sansa. The book, Lives of Four Kings. This is uh, obviously Tyrion can't be thinking that Joffrey's going to like a book, <laughs> but he is suggesting. He is sending a message, and well, the guy who wrote this book, Archmaester Kaith, or whatever his name was. Uh, he didn't have a high opinion of Aegon the Fourth. I mean, that's you go figure. Aegon the Fourth was terrible, but and, and honestly, Robert has more in common with Aegon the Fourth than Joffrey does. But Joffrey has a lot of Aegon the Fourth vibes. Been allowed to reach adulthood, he quite possibly would have been even worse. He was starting to talk a lot like him. You know, the whole thing about "I'm going to come sleep with you, Sansa." That's very Aegon the Fourthish. The other three kings that are mentioned in that book, we have Daron the Second. We have Baylor the Blessed, and we have Daron the First. Now, Daron the First is maybe the most like Joffrey, except he was competent. But he just started an unprovoked war with Dorne, just because because he wanted to accomplish something that his forebears didn't. And well, like I said, I don't think Joffrey would Joffrey if he tried to invade something. It would probably go more like Aegon the Fourth and Daron the First, which was a total disaster. But the idea of being willing to make unprovoked invasions. That does sound a bit like Joffrey. More on these four characters in a minute. There's a, a, a better, we've got more analysis on these four kings and how they apply to this, but we'll do that after the, the rest of the gifts here. Mace Tyrell gives a golden chalice three feet tall. Now this, of course, this, of course, uh, this is the chalice that Joffrey drinks out of, that dies from. This is, it's huge, 
in part because, well, they want to be able to control it and see it and they need to know where it is at all times, right? It's really important. If you're going to slip the poison in this in his drink, it helps a lot to have his cup be extremely visible as he know where it is at all times. See, I've got a question there, sure. which is that really speaks to how potent, I guess, the poison is like think about how much liquid was in there <laughs> that's a good point like how much how watered down it would be <laughs> by the time true. he drank it <laughs> yeah well it is it is strong stuff i guess the strangler right i mean uh crescent died from only a tiny little bit so so the, the chalice is kind of perfect in that way both symbolically uh, and logistically and it's all but but yet it doesn't garner any suspicion from the powers that be because it's just a cup, you know, it's not, it's not like the poison could be hidden inside it ahead of time. It's not like they had some device that they pushed a button and the poison was released inside the cup, you know, it's not like that. But of course, also having it be large gives them a chance for Joffrey to be drunk, which that's good too. Having Joffrey not paying attention, having Joffrey do exactly what he did, causing disruptions, getting everyone's attention, that's perfect. If Joffrey's got every eye in the room on him, all the easier to drop that poison right in the chalice. Of course, that is what happens, but not because of Joffrey's ostentatious being a teenager, <laughs> but his the pie, the wedding pie being cut. That's probably when it happened. But hey, we've got a nice little following of the poison bit written out here for the actual wedding in a minute. Now, a little quote, a little funny bit here. Joffrey jokes about how the chalice needs to have the direwolf chopped off and a squid added on. But honestly, given all the politics that just happened, the Tullys have to be removed from that cup as well. <laughs> There's a trout on there and they would have to replace that with, I don't know, Littlefinger. <laughs> Here's a quote about Tyrion noticing the chalice. The damn thing's as tall as I am, Tyrion muttered in a low voice. Half a chalice and Joff will be falling down drunk. Good, she thought. Perhaps he'll break his neck. <laughs> Pretty close there, Sansa. He didn't break his neck, but his neck was the thing that, you know, went wrong for him. <laughs> Choking. Uh, so Tywin gives Widow's Whale. Now, this is, of course, fancy, fancy, and amazing. But, of course, we hate it because Joffrey doesn't deserve that sword. And we know who that sword used to belong to. And we know Tywin is, is, has lusted for this moment. He's so happy to be able to have a, a sword in his family. And of course, the sword being so very Lannister looking, not just in its ornamentation, but in the blade itself. It's just, yeah, people are staring at it and I would too. Ironically, it gets named Widow's Whale here in this scene and the Wailing Widow will be Cersei in The Purple Wedding when, she's, when Joffrey dies. And that's going to be ominous because the next blade's owner is going to be Tommen and he's extremely likely to die too. And well... Well, she'll have some kind of reaction. George was truly, clearly trying to wrap up some of the remaining Act One mysteries, and he does it pretty smoothly here by incorporating the cat's paw dagger stuff here. Again, cat's paw is also not a book term, but it's a fine way to refer to the dagger since we don't have a book name for it. Tyrion's known since the Game of Thrones that Catelyn believed he had sent the hired killer to murder Bran, and that Littlefinger was the one who gave him the idea or gave her the idea. But what he hadn't known is who actually dispatched the cat's paw. He didn't know who sent 
the person with the dagger. Joffrey gives the clue, saying he's no stranger to Valyrian steel and giving Tyrion a, quote, sharp look, sharp look. <laughs> nice, George. When Tyrion reminds him about the dagger. So Tyrion deduces in his next chapter that it was Joffrey, and then Jamie is going to do so later. And he won't get the why, though, until Jamie 9 is Storm of Swords. So that's coming too. Between Jamie and Tyrion, they piece it together. Now, here's a little more about the Viserys II and Baylor I and all that. It's interesting, first, that it's presented from Sansa's point of view because some of that's going to go over her head because she's not as well-versed in some of the history as Oberyn and Tyrion. I mean, Tyrion's a his- history buff and Oberyn went to the Citadel. So that's not a slam on Sansa by any means. But it's interesting that she's the observer for this and she gets to blurt out a, a thing about Baylor. She's like, Baylor was a great king, this and that. And well... We can tell you that Baylor was not a great king, but he wasn't maybe a bad king either. Maybe he was. It's, he was a very much a mixed bag, which is the truth for a lot of kings, if we're being honest about it. The subtext here about killing a king for the good of the realm is prominent, of course, because it's brought up that Viserys II may have poisoned Baylor I. I personally don't think he did, but it's, it's possible for sure. I do, however, think Aegon the Unworthy, who is the one of the other four kings in the book, did poison Viserys II. Viserys II is the one Tyrion mentions that, hey, he was left out of this book. He was king during this. It should be life of five kings. But, and Oberyn says, oh, he wasn't even king for a year. They should leave him out. Tyrion says he was king for more than a year, and he was hand for 20 years before that. So this is some real meta, because Viserys II was hand to an ungrateful king for a long time. Sounds like Tywin Lannister, doesn't it? There is a lot more about Viserys II that's almost exactly like Tywin. It's a massive list of parallels that we go into in, well, the episodes on the Blackfire Rebellions and such. Right after Viserys II's death, Aegon the Unworthy ascends, and then after Aegon the Unworthy, or during his reign, is when the Blackfire stuff begins. So, before that, though, there's a lot of setup because Daron the Young Dragon and Baylor the Blessed were the sons of Aegon the Third. Aegon the Third being the one who emerged from the Dance of the Dragons as the only last man standing, sort of. And Viserys the Second was his younger brother because Aegon the Third was king. He dies. Daron becomes king. Daron dies without heirs. Baylor becomes king. Baylor dies without heirs. Viserys becomes king. Uncle Viserys becomes king. Rules for less than a year or about a year, a little over a year. Pardon me. Aegon the Unworthy takes over, and then his son, Daron the Good, takes over. So there's a lot of talking about killing a, a, a king because for the good of the realm, there's a lot of talk about hands ruling for ungrateful kings and undeserving kings who are their nephews. <laughs> so it's a lot, a lot of parallel. Like I said, don't have room to go through all of it because there's so much of it. So I do recommend our Blackfire series. Egg on the Unworthy is the first episode, and that's where quite a lot of this is discussed. So you don't even have to go that deep into it, though I think you'd enjoy it if you did. So, also, a Baylor, very odd. It, odd in a way that I appreciate, actually, is a bit like Jimmy Carter. He's, a, he's the, if any, I think uh, George made Baylor a bit after Jimmy Carter, which is that uh, he was extremely, extremely pacifistic and, and very religious. Maybe not so much in other ways. Are they similar? But that's a big one they have in common. Baylor apologized to Dorne for his brother Daron the Young Dragon attacking Dorne. He, <laughs> he was like, we shouldn't have done that. We don't, you don't owe us anything. We owe you. Even though half the realm is mad that Daron was killed in a parley, Baylor's like, yeah, 
But that's nothing compared to us attacking you with the full might of our armies. And he's right. right? I mean, that's true. They had no right to attack Dorne. What, there was no, Dorne wasn't doing anything overtly provocative to them. I mean, politically, it's bizarre. But like from a human perspective, yeah, Baylor is totally right. So this is, this is the attitude Sansa's backing. And well, Sansa's on the right track. She wouldn't be crazy like Baylor, but she would not, if she were queen, wouldn't be launching many unprovoked aggressions. Now, of course, Tyrion says, hey, don't listen to anything you hear in a song. The singers love to inflate people like Baylor. Now, Sansa has been hearing this nonstop, and she's just going to keep hearing it. This is one of Littlefinger's going to be saying it to her again in a minute. She's like, eventually, she's going to be like, yeah, I know. Don't believe everything you hear in a song. I know. All right, let's get a few thoughts from you guys, a few random thoughts. Another one about Sansa here is that she's, at one point, she thinks she's nervous to the point where she feels like she's swallowed a bat, which is funny because her grandmother's sigil is the bat. Kaylisi Tarverian says, I love how George uses black amethyst as the poison since amethyst was historically used on or in wine cups to prevent drunkenness. Well, pretty neat. It was used as like a ward of sorts. That's pretty cool. Very cool. And of course, we hear that Danny was given a black amethyst jewel to ward off poison. So I guess it kind of goes both ways. Stefan B. points out that the, the quote from Sansa, sometimes the smell of the morning bread from the ovens took him to the kitchens. And sometimes he would climb up to the roof garden or wander all alone down Trader's Walk. <laughs> Tyrion wandering all alone down Trader's Walk. Yeah, all alone, Trader's Walk, that is very symbolic for where Tyrion's headed. She's also curious about Ilaria Sand because, well, she says she's not traditionally beautiful. She's not beautiful, but something about her drew the eye, which is, you know, I think some people would see that and think Sansa's being a little petty there. But, and, you know, I guess kind of she is being a little petty there, but it's, it's a question of what Sansa's used to. Sansa's, again, 13, and she's been told that a very specific thing is beautiful. Like, the way she's been taught to dress and be is beautiful, and, much, um, and very little else fits into that. And so she's kind of being introduced to a new version of beautiful, and I think she kind of gets it. She's struggling with her culturalization here, her socialization, because she's like, she doesn't match the things that, are supposed to be beautiful based on her worldview, what she's been taught. But she's independent thinker enough to realize that something's not quite right about that. Something's off. And that's why something about her is drawing the eye because she's starting to question maybe those beauty standards that she's been taught. Bronwyn Haller points out that the day she needed courage, this day that she really needed courage most of all because she knows what she's about to face is the day she has this happy dream, which is, yeah, if you're being uh, optimistic, that could have something to do with the, the Weirwood Net stuff we we're talking about and her connection to, to the Direwolves still, if she's still got some sort of connection to the Direwolf network. I, I struggle to give it a term. Then this may be where that strength is being drawn from. I like that a lot. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse, carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see, we could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Good way to end that chapter as well. And we're off. Tyrion 8, the actual Purple Wedding, aka the one where Joffrey died. 
Yes. The first line, we'll go right to it, is... The new crown that his father had given the faith stood twice as tall as the one the mob had smashed, a glory of crystal and spun gold. Now, we've seen first lines that have given us a lot to talk about. And this one, whoa, I could go off on just this one line. Not to mention the mob smashed the high septon himself, too. (laughs) They smashed the crown and him. And they did so because of misrule by Lannister and choking off food supplies to the capital by Tyrell. The riot was caused by the Lannisters and the Tyrells. And here they are buying, kind of buying off the faith, sort of like, sorry, so we'll give you a huge crown. But as we've been saying for a while, and as is something that's a big part of the Lannister-Targaryen dichotomy, something that Jamie thinks, he's like, why can't we just get married, Cersei? Why can't we declare that? And Jamie and Cersei puts it quite bluntly, because we're not Targaryens. And the Targaryens are special in that regard. You can't, and one of the things the Targaryens had going for them is that sure, they had plenty of money, but money wasn't the way they got things done. Lannister goals and Lannister success is tied to cash a lot. And there's some things that money can't buy. It might be working here with the High Septon, but it's not going to work for everything. And that is going to be a problem. You can't buy off the faith in terms of that, for example. You can't, you might be able to buy off the High Septon, but you can't convince the entire realm that with money, that the Lannisters' siblings getting married would be okay. That's just not going to happen. It took forever and lots of work and campaigning and threats <laughs> for the Targaryen, you know, veiled threats for the Targaryens to get people to accept it. It took a, more than a generation. And even after that, people didn't fully accept it. So yeah, this is, it all comes back to that. It all comes back to Tywin thinking he can make things right by not just money, but by giving power. It's the same thing he does with these, with trying to rearrange the marriages after Joffrey dies, etc. It's, it's all fall, it comes back to that. This High Septon, by the way, is the one that will be killed on Cersei's orders, too. <laughs> so, again, the, the High Septons have not done well by their closeness to the Lannister regime. So I do think that when, of all the times, when the, um, the faith is against the Lannisters, well, you can see how much of this is earned. <laughs> they earned this hatred of the faith. So Lancel confesses to that high sep- this high septon. And that's why Cersei has him killed because, well, she can't have that getting out. Tyrion's bitterness is as evident as ever. And like I said cha- a couple chapters ago, it's in part because he's just steadily getting drunker and drunker and he's already bitter and he's already tired because he spent much of the night with Shay. So he didn't get a full night's sleep. He's anxious. He doesn't want to be there. And yeah, the food's going to help to settle his stomach a little bit. But in terms of his state of mind, it's very important to keep, to, to keep all that in front of you to know, especially the drunkenness, in my opinion. He's just trying to get through this, really. Tyrion is. He's dreaded this day for a long time. He spoke out against the expense of it all. And now he's worrying that Joff is going to come after him because of the provocation over the dagger. So that's a great little distraction by George. He brings this small little mystery back, one that does need to be cleared up a bit and uses it as a distraction for Tyrion and for the reader. It's funny that Tyrion figures out that Joff is the murderer on the day Joff gets murdered. And ironically, he thinks how he'd believe more in the gods if the statue of the father fell over and crushed Joffrey like a dung beetle. There's probably lots of people who would wish for Joffrey's death on the regular, or in Arya's case, he's actually on her list. So, yeah. So it's just lots of little jokes about wishing Joffrey would die, like the, the 
statue, Sancho thinking about him falling down, breaking his neck. Just, <laughs> but it's it's meant to be double entendre, sort of, or or like a little nod to what's about to happen. But it's also realistic. I mean, if Joffrey were really king, people would be rish- wishing for his death all the time. People who didn't know him personally. Even. Official events mean spending time with Sansa. And the, the point there is that Tyrion and Sansa normally can kind of avoid each other. They don't have to spend a lot of time together. They have this loveless marriage. They have certain events they must attend together, state functions, and this is one of them. The gifting session before that, and now this, the actual wedding. They have to fake it through 77 courses. And the thing about this is, remember how I was talking about people who are adept at playing spy games, people who are observant, the Varus and the Littlefingers and the Olenas, things like that, they're going to notice a lot of this about Tyrion. Tyrion is a weak point. He's the, the proverbial uh, weakness that they can sniff out. Weakness isn't always a military thing. And anyone considering Tyrion would realize this, that he's disaffected, he's unhappy, he's in a loveless marriage, his father doesn't treat him well, Joffrey and him keep clashing in front of everyone. So that's just extremely present and obvious. So it's easy to see why Tyrion would want to leave early. It's easy to see why Tyrion would not want to be very much at the wedding. In fact, certain people like Littlefinger contrived to be out of town during it. And by the way, where is Varys during all this? Where is Varys? He doesn't appear again until he appears in the morning to talk to Tyrion about Shay, And then we don't see him again throughout the wedding, as far as I can recall. So that's pretty interesting. But what's more suspicious is the courteousness of Sir Garland the Gallant. I see a lot of people in the fandom praising him and being like, what a genuine nice guy. <laughs> and he's, he's so friendly and it's a, it's, a light, uh, it's a ray of sunlight and all this darkness. I'm sorry, y'all. I really don't think so. <laughs> I'm sorry to... Garland's purpose is... He's part of it. He is there to make sure Tyrion doesn't leave. And the best thing you can do to make Tyrion want to stay is to give him praise, man. That dude is starved for praise. He is starved for recognition, starved to be loved a little bit, to be, have anyone say nice things to him. Is He's so hungry for that. And Garland just does it the whole time. He's just like praising him. He even It starts back during the gift giving when, when Joffrey chops the book up. Sir Garland's like, that was ill done, your grace. And this is part of why it's so sneakily done. Tyrion was already in a bad mood thinking about how little credit he's gotten before the feast. He, he saved that bloody crown for him, he says about Joffrey, you know? And, and when Tyrion's waiting to greet the newly married couple, he thinks about how the crowds are cheering for Marjorie because she had belonged to Renly, the handsome young prince who had loved them so well. He who had come from beyond the grave to save them. He's like, what the hell? <laughs> how does Renly get all this acclaim when he was a damn traitor and I saved the day? I'm, no one's even talking to me. Like, I got sat way over in the corner here. Uh, no one kissed me. That's another thing he, that goes towards my day. Oh, they do all the little kissing of the, the royal families kissing each other. And Tyrion's left out of that. Honestly, like, if you really, really focus on all the things Tyrion's being left out of, it's a lot. And that's part of why it's just too blatantly suspicious if you get into it that Garland is just so happens to be seated there <laughs> and just so happens to talk to Tyrion so nicely the whole way through. Everyone knows seating charts are a big deal at weddings. They're not random, y'all. They get decided on. People are like, okay, this couple by this couple. It's, it's, it's a highly scrutinized setup, you know? And so there is no doubt that Olena, at the very least, if not more of the Tyrells, 
specifically knew what she was doing when they, when they set Garland by Tyrion. It looks just like Second Son sitting by Second Son. It, it fills up so well. But another factor here, too. Garland. Garland Tyrell isn't even the gallant because of his deeds. It's so sneaky. We think he is because he's, li- he's living up to that. He's got this name, Garland the Gallant. Here he is acting very gallant. We're like, oh, well, he deserves this nickname. It all fits so well. But under the surface... Garland was awkward as a youth. Willis gave Garland the nickname Gar- the Gallant to curtail a worse nickname because Garland was like overweight and he was they well, people were calling him names and so he started calling Garland the Gallant to kill off those other nicknames to make sure none of those stuck. Side point: Willis Tyrell sounds kind of cool. Don't be mistaken about Garland here. He, he might be a charming, charismatic guy. But lame Lothar Tyrell is extremely courteous as well. Like, Garland is no more courteous than Lothar Tyrell. And and Lothar Tyrell arranged the Red Wedding. He was the architect. Do not be fooled. (laughs) So I would say here, it's a bit of irony because this is a theme that just permeates through this chapter, lulling us. There are 77 courses, endless wine. There's dancing bears and songs. By the way, none of those things are things Tyrion is terribly interested in, except for the wine, which he can get elsewhere. He doesn't need to be at the feast to get wine. That's amazing to me that we're all being lulled to sleep by all this. It's like I said, 61-minute chapter. It's one of the longest chapters in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, and it's just filled with descriptions of food and, and the songs and everything. I haven't even bothered to mention the food and songs specifically. We know they're thoroughly described. It might be the chapter where food is most thoroughly described, which is really saying something out of the way George loves to describe it. So this is lulling Tyrion and it's lulling us. It's so much the opposite of the Red Wedding. The Red Wedding is ominous. There's the drums beating. There's so much dark foreshadowing. It's raining. This event, the weather's nice. There doesn't seem to be any real danger, any significant danger occurring or imminent. Maybe later, but not like right during the wedding. And there's no awful food. There's no people climbing together. There's no bad music. It's just, it's so different, the, the feel to it. It's more like a regular wedding. And that's the point. We get lulled. The Red Wedding's a shock. It's an emotionally challenging. This is a surprise. This is a legit surprise. When you go back and look for it, there's the clues. There are clues for it. But there's far more for the Red Wedding. This is more of an actual surprise. So we're all, we've all been lulled into things like what Tyrion was lulled into. And we've been lulled into thinking Garland was a good guy. So let's go with the timeline of the poisoning. Some of you all may not be convinced, especially because a lot of you may have been holding this Garland Tyrell as uh, one of the decent ones all along. And that opinion may take a little more than just me saying so to uh, reverse. And maybe I won't be able to convince you, but we'll give it a shot. So let's, give, let's go through the timeline here. We know pretty certainly when the... Jewel, the Black Amethyst, went from Sansa to Olenna. And we got the quote right here. You do look quite exquisite, child, Lady Olenna Tyrell told Sansa when she tottered up to them in a cloth of gold gown that must have weighed more than she did. The wind has been at your hair, though. The little old woman reached up and fussed at the loose strands, tucking them back into place and straightening Sansa's hairnet. I was very sorry to hear about your losses, she said as she tugged and fiddled. We don't know where the poison goes thereafter. Tyrion notices that Olenna processed 
inside after them, meaning she did the procession because they had all the family and you know, all the, the high nobles did their procession. But while she's seated somewhere on the dais with the rest of the Lannister Tyrell contingent, we don't see where. It's interesting. Check this quote out. The king's guard escorted them onto the dais to the seats of honor beneath the shadow of the Iron Throne, draped for the occasion in long silk streamers of Baratheon gold, Lannister crimson, and Tyrell green. Cersei embraced Marjorie and kissed her cheeks. Lord Tywin did the same, and then Lancel and Sir Kevin. Joffrey received loving kisses from the bride's father and his two new brothers, Loras and Garlin. No one seemed in any great rush to kiss Tyrion. When the king and queen had taken their seats, the high septon rose to lead a prayer. At least he does not drone as badly as the last one, Tyrion consoled himself. He and Sansa had been seated far to the king's right, beside Sir Garland Tyrell and his wife, the Lady Leonette. A dozen others sat closer to Joffrey, which a pricklier man might have taken for a slight, given that he had been the king's hand only a short time past. Tyrion would have been glad if there had been a hundred. So at this point, we're not sure if she still has the strangler, but she probably does. And it's definite that the poison isn't yet in Joffrey's cup because Joffrey and Marjorie share, which we see here, quote. Let the cups be filled, Joffrey proclaimed when the gods had been given their due. His cupbearer poured a whole flagon of dark arbor red into the golden wedding chalice that Lord Tyrell had given him that morning. The king had to use both hands to lift it. <laughs> to my wife, the queen. Marjorie, of course, smiling sweetly as she and Joffrey shared a drink from the great seven-sided wedding chalice. Yeah. A little later in the feast, Joffrey comes to, quote, honor his uncle Tyrion and make him his cupbearer. And this is when we get into the closeness of it. Quote. Suddenly, he felt Sir Garland's hand on his sleeve. My lord, beware, the knight warned. The king. Tyrion turned in his seat. Joffrey was almost upon him, red-faced and staggering, wine slopping over the rim of the great golden wedding chalice he carried in both hands. Your grace was all he had time to say before the king upended the chalice over his head. The wine washed down his face in a red torrent. It drenched his hair, stung his eyes, burned in his wound, ran down his cheeks, and soaked the velvet of his new doublet. How do you like that, imp? Joffrey mocked. So obviously the stranger still hasn't been placed in the cup because it was just upended all over Tyrion <laughs> and then filled again a minute later. But who pops up right this second, right when Tyrion is drenched? Boom, quote. Queen Marjorie appeared suddenly at Joffrey's elbow. My sweet king, the Tyrell girl entreated. Come, return to your place. There's another singer waiting. Alaric of Ison, said Lady Elena Tyrell, leaning on her cane and taking no more notice of the wine-soaked dwarf than her granddaughter had done. I do so hope he plays us the reins of Castamir. It has been an hour. I've forgotten how it goes. <laughs> That's hilarious, but it's also like, here it comes, the reins of Castamir, but in reverse, it's the Lannister who is going to die and <laughs> not uh, the Lannisters doing the killing. So Olena just appears as kind of as if from nowhere. Marjorie was just already right there. She's with Joffrey most of the time. She, it, it says that she appeared suddenly at Joffrey's elbow, but we're talking about Olena as the one who is kind of more out of nowhere here. Now, 
the next line after Marjorie makes her plea. Joffrey's, he's just not done yet. He's got more humiliation to drop. I have no wine, Joffrey declared. How can I drink a toast if I have no wine? Uncle Imp, you can serve me. Since you won't joust, you'll be my cupbearer. I would be most honored. It's not meant to be an honor, Joffrey screamed. Bend down and pick up my chalice. Tyrion did as he was bid. But as he reached for the handle, Joff kicked the chalice through his legs. Pick it up. Are you as clumsy as you are ugly? He had to crawl under the table to find the thing. Good. Now fill it with wine. He claimed a flagon from a serving girl and filled the goblet up three quarters full. No, on your knees, dwarf. Kneeling, Tyrion raised up the heavy cup, wondering if he was about to get a second bath. But Joffrey took the wedding chalice one-handed, drank deep, and set it on the table. You can get up now, uncle. Your grace, Lord Tywin's voice was impeccably correct. They are bringing in the pie. Your sword is needed. The pie? Joffrey took his queen by the hand. Come on, my lady. It's the pie. (laughs) So Joffrey drank deep and still nothing's happened. So that's how we know he still hasn't been poisoned. And when he does start choking, it's it's bam. And that's how it was for Crescent too. And so we know this is seemingly how the Strangler operates. Joffrey's stunt with Tyrion and the wine, that was obviously unplanned. The, the Tyrells, no poison plotter could have seen that coming. However, Olena, we're crediting Olena, assuming she's the, the person that most realized this. It's possible one of the other Tyrells did, but I think it's a safe bet that Olena had this realization. She's smart enough to recognize that the vast majority of the courtiers would be distracted by the cutting of the pie. Consequently, they're not going to notice at the end of uh, what's going on pretty much anywhere else, especially at the end of the main dais. This is, well, probably gives it to Garland. She probably gives the, par- the, the strangler to Garland, who can then put the cup, put, the, put it into the cup when everyone's watching the actual cutting of the wedding pie. Let's have another quote. But before they could make their retreat, Joffrey was back. Uncle, where are you going? You're my cupbearer, remember? I need to change into fresh garb, your grace. May I have your leave? No, I like the look of you this way. Serve me my wine. The king's chalice was on the table where he'd left it. Tyrion had to climb back onto his chair to reach it. Joff yanked it from his hands and drank long and deep, his throat working as the wine ran purple down his chin. My lord, Marjorie said, we should return to our places. Lord Buckler wants to toast us. My uncle hasn't eaten his pigeon pie. Holding the chalice one-handed, Joff jammed his other into Tyrion's pie. <laughs> and I just reached with his hand, his bare <laughs> it hand. took me a second. <laughs> <laughs> it's ill luck not to eat the pie, he scolded as he filled his mouth with... I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just really picturing it. <laughs> he scolded as he filled his mouth with hot, spiced vision. <laughs> I'm so sorry. (laughs) See? It's good. (laughs) I'm trying to get a hold of myself. It's a death scene. Spitting out flakes of crust, he coughed and helped himself to another fistful. (laughs) Dry though, I can't. 
<laughs> I have tears streaming down my face. <laughs> ah, this is exactly how we predicted the purple wedding coverage would go. That that <laughs> Shay would be laughing so hard she's crying. <laughs> I baked a purple cake for the purple wedding on the show. That's true, you did. <laughs> okay. Dry, though. Needs washing down. Joff took a swallow of wine and coughed again. Okay, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the, 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 part, the important part here is the chalice is still left where Joffrey left it. He goes all the way to the front of the room or back to the front of the dais to cut the pie, and the, the chalice was just left sitting there right by Garland. <laughs> so you see, we know it wasn't Tyrion. We know it wasn't Sansa. Other people aren't named. You know, Leonette Garland's wife is named. I mean, that's an outside possibility, I suppose. But really, the only other options are, are unnamed, like servants and things like that. And that just doesn't work. Some people have suggested, oh, the, the pie could be poisoned. Some people suggested the cream on top of the pie could be poisoned. I really, really, really don't think so. The black amethyst is very well explained and uh, filled out and foreshadowed and all that. I really, really don't think it was anything else. So I'm not going to spend much time talking about that. Also, Nina points that to the, the wine running purple down his chin might be a hint that now the wine is poisoned because it wasn't before. The, the wine, uh, the, the strangler is purple, black and purple. And there was nothing before that uh, to hint for it. So... I think that's it. It could be Olena dropping the poison in there. She could have dropped it in the in the chalice before she went back to her place. But that's before people were... She had gone to the front while the um, cutting of the pie was happening, or at least walked off a little bit. So I think that's it. I, there's been so many attempts to unpack the Purple Wedding. And of course, there could be a detail off here and there, but I think this is the main thrust. I think Marjorie, Mace... Garland and Olena were in on it, and maybe nobody else. Marjorie had to be in on it because she had to know not to drink from the chalice. She had to be very aware of the timing. Mace was probably aware because, well, he's, it's the, the whole thing. He gives the chalice, and, you know, he's got to be arranged with the seating, although he doesn't do much during it. There's a chance Mace wasn't involved. I lean towards him being involved, but you can make an argument that he wasn't. I think he's the least, of, of the four that I named, he's the one that's, the most likely not involved. Elena is clearly the most likely involved. She takes the poison from Sarah's hairnet. And obviously, Marjorie having to avoid the cup is a pretty, pretty strong argument too. On the other hand, people point out that Marjorie didn't know in the show, but there wasn't a giant wedding chalice in the show. They weren't sharing a cup in the show. So that just wouldn't, you know, that, there's no, I won't, the show is meaningless to, uh, to helping us in this part. Uh, yeah, anyway, let's move on a little bit. There's a couple other notes about it. It's crazy how Tywin still clings to decorum as Joffrey is dying. He's like, let go, Cersei. <laughs> it's, this is a grieving mother, man. Your own daughter. Like, let her be in grief. It's crazy. A thin black dog comes up and sniffs Joff's corpse, which is, the symbolism ranges anywhere from Sandor Clegane to, well, it's a, it's a standard old school liter a literary trope of a black dog um, foreshadowing or indicating death because this person's already dead. Now, Cersei is really, really interesting here. She doesn't have a big role in the chapter directly because she's mostly just there until she's reacting to her son's death. However, we have to consider the Valonqar prophecy, something that's always been in the back of her mind, but she probably was able to dismiss it until now. Whether she was able to dismiss it or be anxious about it, 
Now, the minute her son dies and she thinks it's Tyrion, it all comes crashing down. She's like, oh no, it was true. She's starting to think that the whole prophecy is true. So she's not just like, oh my God, my brother just killed my son, but my other two children are in danger because that prophecy apparently is true. I imagine she was in some level of denial about it. And let's be honest, it's a prophecy. She shouldn't, it, you know, there's no reason for her to just strictly believe in it. But now that it seems to be coming true, I can just imagine this rush of, of panic and fear and, oh my God, this is really happening. To top it all off, another thing different from the show, Jamie was there in the show. Jamie is clearly not here at the Purple Wedding in the book. And that makes it worse for Cersei because not only is Jamie's presence not there, which helps her just in general, but she worries he's dead. She's also got a little bit of anxiety about whether he's still alive. Joe Buckley catches a nice little quote here. The sleepless night he'd spent with Shay was making itself felt too. But most of all, he wanted to strangle his bloody royal nephew. Strangle. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Tyrion continues to misread Sansa uh, throughout this. Um, well, in general, and remember he's drunk, but remember and remember that he doesn't, ha- he doesn't know how to read such things because they were never aimed at him. But nonetheless, quote. She fiddled nervously with her hair and looked down to the table where Joffrey sat with his Tyrell queen. Does she wish it were her in Marjorie's place? Tyrion frowned. Even a child should have better sense. Yeah, Sansa's not jealous. She's concerned. She feels bad. She likes Marjorie, you know? And of course, she's anxious about what's coming later. But in terms of just this moment, She's worried for Marjorie marrying Joffrey. She's not jealous of marrying Joffrey. I mean, yeah, Sansa should know better. And she does know better. She's not stupid. So that, that's a thought that, that's kind of born out of Tyrion's bitterness and um, drunkenness, I think. Because I think if he was sober and in a better mood, that he would realize that that's a silly thought for him to have. Now, another, another great catch by Joe here. No, my lord. She looked away from him and feigned an unconvincing interest in Moonboy, pelting Sir Dantos with dates. He's actually, or she's actually quite interested in Dantos at this point because she's going to be running off with him very soon. So knowing where he's at, keeping an interest in in his location and making sure nothing's going on with him is uh, actually kind of important. But of course, Tyrion has no idea about that. Also, Joe Buckley loves that Sansa just can't control herself and blurts out that Cersei was not brave during the battle. He's like, she was never, she never did that. <laughs> and Sansa's, that's amazing because Sansa's really good at just like keeping it in and being courteous and not saying, insulting things on her mind. But that was just too much. She's like, Cersei was terrible during <laughs> the battle of Blackwater. She was a ter- terrible leader. And Sansa was a great leader during that scene. So yeah, it's another thing that Joe points out that Tyrion and Sansa could have bonded over if circumstances and lots of other things were different, which is that they both don't like people getting credit where it doesn't belong. They're both kind of a credit where credit is due kind of person. They have that attitude. Again, I come back to Varys' lack of appearance here, and I think it's the same maybe reason that Littlefinger wasn't there. Little Tyrion thinks Littlefinger was smart to not be here, and Varys, I think, same. And I think Varys knew something was going to happen. He may not, he may have even known exactly what was going to happen. He may have figured out they were going to kill Joffrey and was like, sure, go ahead. I'm not going to get in the way of that. Do it. And uh, he may have wondered if, you know, something else could, something much worse could have gone wrong. Like maybe he's worried about a riot breaking out over Joffrey's death, which Varys was also nowhere around when the riot broke out. (laughs) So, yes. 
it's a bit of irony that the last instrument the playing here is a is a flute, which is we had the same thing happen in the Red Wedding. All the instruments stopped except for a drum. And to me, this is more about the the setting of and tone of these chapters. And even though there's deaths at a wedding, they're very different in a lot of ways. And this is kind of this effect is enhanced very darkly by you know flute. The, the flute is a dirge. He's playing a dirge, but just before that, or right during that, we have this quote. A fearful high, thin sound emerged from the boy's throat. The sound of a man trying to suck a river through a reed. But then it stopped, and that was more terrible still. Yeah, right? <laughs> Just picture that. Jeez. I mean, and, and think of Cersei and how she, she felt about that. George R. R. Martin weighs in a little bit here on Joffrey's death. He says, Joffrey is a classic 13-year-old bully. Do you know many 13-year-old kids you'd like to give absolute power to? There is a cruelty in children, especially children of a certain age that you see in junior high and middle school. We don't want 13-year-old bullies to be put to death. We probably do when we're their 13-year-old victims, though. But they grow up and most of them grow out of it. And sometimes people do regret their actions. But Joffrey will never get that chance. We don't know what he would have become. Probably nothing good, but still dot, dot, dot. And that's, that's what George is saying. He's like, look, this is ultimately, this is still a child. This is a 13-year-old. Tyrion realizes that as he's dying, as Joffrey's dying. And Cersei, of course, knows this. And Cersei's an awful person. But you can feel some sympathy for a mother losing their child, even though, even if you have none for Cersei or Joffrey as characters. So like I said, there's so much about this, the Red Wedding and the Purple Wedding that are different. And I went through a lot of the, the setting things, but as far as the aftermath, let's talk about that a little bit. Unlike the Red Wedding, the Purple Wedding actually changes the game a lot less politically. Lannister power is still essentially the same. Joffrey wasn't actually ruling yet. He was, you know, his age, he was too young. He was age of minority. So this changes nothing for Stannis. This changes nothing for the Iron Islands. This doesn't even change anything for the Starks, really. Sansa getting away does, but Joffrey's death doesn't. The Red Wedding was about eliminating a faction entirely. The Purple Wedding was about swapping out a chaotic, unmanageable brute of a king on the verge of coming of age for a sweet, easygoing, and controllable, very young king. The Red Wedding left no doubt, and part of the story is the reckoning, aka the curse earned by the perpetrators, which has already begun, right? Tywin, Walder Frey, they're gonna, the Boltons, they're going to suffer for their actions. The Purple Wedding is, though, is tricky in a lot of ways. Some of the details are hard to pinpoint. There's more debate over what actually happened. But the bottom line that it was the Tyrells, there's not much argument about that. But in world, there is. Because to us, the readers, this stuff is clear enough. But in world, the Tyrells are not suspected by hardly anyone. Not out in the world. It's not like suggested. I mean, I bet Varus and Littlefinger, people like that are like, hmm. But for the most part, it's pinned on Tyrion and Sansa. And that gives us enduring plot power of an entirely different flavor since we know they're innocent and unwitting participants. But that die is cast. That guilt still carries them forward even though it's false guilt. Sansa runs off to the veil and Tyrion goes to the jail. Would Tyrion have turned on his family if they hadn't blamed him for this? I don't know. Maybe, probably. Regardless, this is the real moment where... Tyrion and his family are never going to be, well, they're not on speaking, they won't be on speaking terms anymore after this, except for, you know, a little bit of 
talking to him in his jail cell and uh, all that. And Jamie's going to have his last conversation with Tyrion and that's not going to go well. Yeah, it's a huge shift for both these characters. It's their big, big transition moment of the book, of the most transitional of all the books. Again, I want to bring up the theme of sacrifice. The young for the old yet again. It's not just that Joffrey was killed for power games. It's the idea that a king was slain not just on the first day of a new year, but of a new century. Real, this taps into a lot of real world ancient traditions and some from inside Planetos. Long gone real world traditions include the sacrificing of royal people, sometimes even the king. In world, that happens in Pentos when things don't go well, when princes, yeah, when there's failed crops and lost wars, they slit the throat of their, of their prince, who is it's the same as Prince of Sunspear. It's the top guy. It's the same as the king. So that is very interesting, I think, and, and speaks to something that George loves to delve into just a little bit here and there, but overall, as a whole, he delves into it a lot, which is the mythical symbolism behind a lot of these plot elements are actually rehashing some of these ancient things. Sansa notices ice for the first time. Well, the lack of ice. Sir Ellen Payne draws his sword, and she knows that it's not ice. She has no idea where the real sword is, but it's something of concern to her. And Tyrion thinks, yeah, I should have given ice back to them. It's just another thing Tyrion's regretting in his long uh, run of, of hating himself during this event. It's funny that Widow's Whale is declared too good for the pie, but it's good enough to chop up rare books. Hmm. And, and by good enough, I'm frowning at this. Sansa, as we have noticed, gives off a lot of good Queen Alisande vibes. And well, check this quote. She would have made Joffrey a good queen and a better wife if he'd had the sense to love her. <laughs> yep, right on. There's some Olena humor here too. Forgive a silly old woman, my lord. I did not mean to steal your lovely wife. <laughs> that's funny because that's exactly what she's trying to do. She just got one up by Littlefinger. Remember, right at the beginning of the wedding, she's like, maybe you company me for a little visit. I'm leaving for Highgarden tomorrow. And she's like, oh, I can't stay here. You know, I can't go with you. I got to be with my husband. And of course, what we're pretty sure happened is that Olena assumed and maybe had worked out with Littlefinger that they're going to pin it on Tyrion. They know that. And they would be able to keep Sansa from getting too much of the blame or at least keep her, you know, as a, as a child, be able to keep her from having anything terrible happen to her in terms of justice and then be able to take her and marry her to Willis like they wanted to do at the beginning of the book. And, you know, kind of one-up Tywin again as this was all happening so quickly. They thought that Tyrion was married to Sansa and they're going to steal her right away again. So I think that's exactly what's happening. And it's, it's funny that Olena is basically declaring it here. But Littlefinger, you know, as I said, one-upped her and stole Sansa first. He had a longer-term plan and he's more obsessed with her. He wants her claim and her. Olena just wants the claim. Now, of course, speaking of Cersei and the Valonqar, there's, there's another perspective here that's important, which is that of the dwarf jousters. Penny and Oppo are the two jousting dwarves there. And of course, Oppo is later killed because Cersei issues this, this, this decree that bring me Tyrion's head and you get paid. And what ends up happening is other dwarves' heads get brought to her and because people just start killing dwarves. It's pretty awful. So that's what happens. That's what happens to Oppo slash Grote. And 
Penny, of course, attacks Tyrion in an act of revenge that she later laments, and, you know, they become kind of friends and close-ish. More on her when we get there. But it's interesting to note that she's there and that she's sort of referred to. Facebook commenter Whitney Cayley Stanfield drew my attention to this quote that gave me pause to think about more. And dwarfs' pennies as well. I have heard of these dwarfs' pennies. No doubt collecting those is such a dreadful chore. <laughs> yeah. In fact, it is a dreadful chore. Littlefinger complains to Sansa that, do you know how hard it is to conceal dwarves in a brothel? And Oswell went, the guy who takes Sansa and Dantos by ship to uh, Littlefinger's boat, is the one who went to pick up these dwarves in Bravos. So yeah, it was a dreadful chore. The dwarf's penny. The dwarf is Penny. Hmm, yeah, right. Another thing Olena says that's extremely double entendre-ish and very, very ironic is... Your brother was a terrible traitor, I know. But if we start killing men at weddings, they'll be even more frightened of marriage than they are presently. Oh, jeez. <laughs> There's actually a lot of war wrap-up throughout this one. They talked about other people surrendering and other people the way the war is progressing. And that's part of why Tyrion is thinking how it's high summer for House Lannister. But we don't need to go into those details, but because we'll have other opportunities to do so at another time, we'll keep this mostly about the wedding itself and the plotting around it. Though I do want to say one thing about people surrendering. When Joffrey's the one who was like, when people surrender, you know, like they're traitors, you should just kill them. And Tywin's like, no, when they bend the knee, you got to let them back up. How is this actually playing out when people come to surrender to Joffrey? What is he saying to them? He's, he's like being rude to them. Like, I really want to chop your head off, but fine, I'll be, <laughs> I'll be courteous. I would, it would be interesting to see what he was doing there. Funny moment when Tyrion wonders if Marjorie is really a maiden. <laughs> like, I wonder if she's really a maiden. And well, with Renly, according to Stannis, in your, in your bed, she's like to stay that way. So this is maybe another little nod to Renly's sexuality. And here's speaking of nods to where Sansa's going. Tyrion thinks to himself, he had always had a yen to see the Titan of Bravos. Perhaps that would please Sansa. Gently, he spoke of Bravos. <laughs> well, if Sansa only knew, because at this point, Sansa thinks she's going home, which is home Winterfell, which obviously Littlefinger's taking her to the Vale. And well, he's, he's not taking her to the Titan of Bravos, but that is his house's sigil. Imagine if Tyrion <laughs> and Sansa really did just go on vacation, yeah. like a honeymoon tour. Yeah, that'd be so awkward. Great, great hilarious take by Tree Girl here. When Joffrey is choking and people are just panicking and not knowing what to do, Olena runs up and it says something like her voice is 10 times bigger than her and says, don't just stand there, you dolts, help your king. So Tree Girl says, Olena has a battlefield voice. <laughs> yep, she clearly does. <laughs> and Liet Rubenfeld says, I think Cersei purposely used her old wedding cloak implying Marjorie is used and denying her the maiden queen appearance. Ooh, I did not think of it that way. That's a good call. All right, we are ready to move on from the purple wedding. Sansa 5 is... Sansa gets on a boat because of the implication, aka the one where Dantos dies. Sansa's moment comes to escape. She faces it very bravely, but it's absolutely and completely a lie because it's not really an escape. And she unwittingly becomes implicated in that lie. And worse, regicide. The opening line is... Far across the city, a bell began to toll. Yeah. 
as well as being a nice little callback to when it all changed in Game of Thrones when Robert died, meaning the bell. As Sansa will note in a minute, we at least get this reassurance that she's gotten at least a little ways away from the throne room. So she's at least made some progress towards her escape. But it serves to give us a little bit of tension because she hasn't escaped. She's in the process of it. And uh, who knows what will happen. You know, I wouldn't personally, going way back to the first time I read this book, I wouldn't say that I saw Dantos's death coming when I first read it because honestly, I wasn't thinking about what was next at all. It was a roller coaster ride, fire hose mode, right? But that said, it was not a surprise. <laughs> it was like, oh yeah, of course, this guy's getting killed here. Years later, I see the layers in which George R. R. Martin shows us why Littlefinger kills him. Even though it wasn't a surprise at the time, some of the nuance may not have been so obvious. On one hand, or one layer, it's pretty straightforward. Villains killing people who can spill their secrets is a highly familiar trope, in part because it's completely realistic. That's a, a real-world thing. People kill people who have their secrets or do things to shut them up. That's completely realistic. Littlefinger points out that a man who tells, sells you secrets for gold will eventually sell your secrets too. Hypocritical, but accurate. He also points out that drunk people can't be trusted with secrets. Also accurate, less, and less hypocritical for him too because he's not a big drinker. So these layers are intuitive. When you reveal them, it's like, oh yeah, this, that just makes total sense. You may not have thought of it, it may not have occurred to you, but once you hear it, it's like, ah, yes, of course. The subtlety lies in moments just before and Danto's showing he can't stop talking when they're on this rowboat. He proves what Littlefinger is saying. Oswald Kettleblack has to tell Dantos to shut up, I think more than once, mentioning that sound travels more easily over water. He's risking their escape by blabbering, which is kind of the Littlefinger's point. Like, this guy cannot be trusted to keep his mouth shut. He does not have impulse control. Dantos is foreshadowing his own death by highlighting how unreliable he is. I mean, before that, he's drunk enough that Sansa needs to help him walk. Get that, get that straight. This guy, on the day they're trying to escape, Sansa has to help him walk. He's a very large man, too. Given that, plus his inability to keep his mouth shut, it, I, even though I'm no fan of Littlefinger as a person, as a character, I think he's interesting. I can totally agree with him here that what confidence would anyone have that Dantos would keep his mouth shut afterwards? He would spill all these secrets. Littlefinger's right. And as they're leaving, Sansa blurts out that he's not supposed to be wearing his knightly garb because Joffrey said it would be his death if he did so. Ooh. It's humorous in the, in the moment because Sansa's like, oh yeah, Joffrey's dead, so it doesn't matter. So Joff's decrees are irrelevant. But George R. R. Martin's sense of irony is definitely not irrelevant. <laughs> this is the actual line he says. I wanted to be a knight, for this at least. Dantos lurched back to his feet and took her arm. Which rings hollow. He wants to be a knight for this most unknightly of acts. George has warped this expectation and trope of, of knighthood, saving a princess from the evil castle. The knight is lying through his teeth. He's not really a knight. I mean, he kind of is, but... Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether he technically is still a knight or not. Anyway, he's, he's, he tries to kiss her. He's selling her for drink money. I mean, come on. This is, yeah, out with you, Dantos. But he is dying a knight. There is that. He did die a knight. That's not what he knew he was doing. But yeah, he died a knight. He didn't, maybe didn't deserve to it. But yeah. As soon as he's shot, we get this quote. You killed him. Clutching the rail, Sansa turned away and retched. Had she escaped the Lannisters to tumble into worse? My lady, 
Littlefinger murmured. Your grief is wasted on such a man as that. He was a sot and no man's friend. Littlefinger is totally missing the point. She's not grieving. She's not like, oh my God, poor Dantos. She's shocked. And she's, like her inner monologue says, is worried that Littlefinger is worse than the Lannisters. She's on the right track. Immediately she realizes, yeah, this guy could be worse. For the realm, eh, Lannisters are probably worse. But for Sansa Stark personally, Littlefinger is arguably worse. And well, whether he is or not, it's so close, who cares? She's terrible for him, or he's terrible for her. No Lannister has had a lifelong obsession with her mother, whom she looks a lot like. So that's why I'm saying on the personal level, that's awful. Littlefinger wants to marry her, right? And unlike Tyrion, he's not going to wait if she's uncomfortable. I mean, he's being super manipulative and creepy. This is Game of Thrones, but I think Littlefinger read the the book, The Game, because he's saying all the all these creepy predator things like, isolating her and and making her think that he's the only one that can protect her. He says things like, you're safe with me and we're sailing home. Of course, he's manipulating her even in that line, doubly so because it's his home, which is the only place I can protect you. And standard, other standard predator lines like, "You're, I'm the only one you can trust. And at the end of the chapter, he says, hey girl, I banged your mom. What? I mean, come on. <laughs> like, Jesus. And he flat out says that he and he just straight up can't wait to tell her that, yep, I set up Tyrion. <laughs> he just can't wait to spill the, just like show how clever he is. But he's just completely misreading her. See, Littlefinger is great at reading people in terms of power dynamics, in terms of like what they're after, what, what moves them in terms of what their motivations are for gaining power. But when it term, comes to things like this, like safety, and feeling secure and, and feeling happy and, and things like that, like more normal positive emotions, hey, Littlefinger has no idea what he's doing. And that's where I think Varus is, that's why Varus, I think, is more skilled player of the game than, than Littlefinger because Varus does get those things. Varus has had real, real suffering in his upbringing. He didn't just, oh, I didn't get the girl I loved when I was a teenager. I mean, Varus had his manhood cut off, you know, things like that. That's a, he's, he was starving in the streets. So he's got a much different perspective on, on common folk. Littlefinger does not. Littlefinger doesn't have that thing. And I think that might be ultimately what gets, be, becomes his undoing. He's, not, he's already making these mistakes in, in judging Sansa's uh, emotions here. It's going to end with his death. Here's a quote that Joe wanted us to take a look at. The gods are just, thought Sansa. Rob had died at a wedding feast as well. It was Rob she wept for, him and Marjorie. Poor Marjorie, twice wed and twice widowed. <laughs> I like how Joe words it. There must be entire vats of adrenaline pumping through her veins at the moment with the, the thrill of escape, the actual getting away, getting caught by whoever, maybe Tyrion, maybe Kingsguard, who knows whether Dantos is actually going to be able to pull this off or not, because I wouldn't be so confident in Dantos given he's falling down drunk. Plus, climbing down that stairs, those the making that climb she made, that is, that's terrifying too. I'm a climber and that's terrifying. <laughs> I mean, damn, you're climbing a rock face that you didn't get a look at during daylight and, and her with no climbing experience at all. I mean, I guess if drunken, overweight Dantos can do it, maybe it's not as bad as I think, but still... For her, she was terrified, and I get it. She's not a climber and someone... She doesn't even 
get outside the Red Keep very often for physical activity. We saw she was riding with Marjorie for a while. They were getting to ride horses. And then that dried up because the Tyrells kind of abandoned her when she married Tyrion. Anyway, it's a bit of a, a parallel to Sansa, uh, to, uh, well, Sansa's mother in, in the Vale when she's riding uh, the mules up on the uh, narrow mountain passes. So Sansa goes from drunken Tyrion to drunken Dantos to all too sober Littlefinger where she's at now and she's running away from the, the tolling bells of the boy king's death. And the bells are a big part throughout all these chapters. Well, you toll the bells for the new year. You toll the bells for a king's death. And well, I don't know what these bells tolling exactly say about the bells later, but it's worth noting so that we can come back to it and, and maybe realize these bits that we may have missed. Also relating to Catelyn, she killed an innocent and his name was Aegon and he had bells in his hair. So there was bells tolling there too. So there's a lot of like Sansa-Catelyn parallel going on here that is framed in these bells and the deaths of kings and people who have king's names. Littlefinger bring, uh, brags about the influence he had over Joffrey in getting him to agree to the dwarf jousters, which is maybe a suggestion, a hint that, of something we all, that a lot of us widely believe, which is that it was his idea to execute Ned. He, meaning Littlefinger suggested that to Joffrey, floated that idea, Joffrey latched onto it, and there you go. That was a, I think that's, I agree with that theory. That's Nina's idea. I totally agree with that. Here's something both Joe and Nina caught, uh, same here as well, but we all have different takes on it, so I'm going to mash it all together and give you sort of a combo take. Littlefinger claims he had no motive in murdering Joffrey. But that is not true. <laughs> he's either lying or misremembering, probably lying because he's a liar. Uh, the agreement was probably that Littlefinger provides the poison and Tyrell's put it in Joffrey's cup while framing Tyrion. That's the bare bones of the deal. They need some, they need a scapegoat. Tyrion's a perfect scapegoat for a lot of reasons for both of them, for the Tyrells and for Littlefinger. Littlefinger doesn't like Tyrion, doesn't, and wants Sansa, and Tyrion had, you know, lied to him before and, and threatened him before, and there's the whole dagger thing that Littlefinger doesn't want Tyrion to come back at him for. So it would be better for Littlefinger if Tyrion was just off the board entirely. And for the Tyrells, that's pretty clear too. They don't want the blame to fall on them and Tyrion is the perfect scapegoat. So that is, it's not just a chaos is a ladder move. It's not a no motive thing. He gets Sansa. <laughs> That's exactly why he did it. That's exactly his move, but he doesn't want to tell Sansa that. He's not like, all of this was so I could get you. Like, he's trying not to scare her. He's failing, <laughs> but he's trying not to scare her. And if he said that, he would, she would be scared even more rightly so. And Joe Buckley says, yeah, Littlefinger, there's also the chaos thing because Littlefinger thrives on chaos. Killing Joffrey alone is, is a bonus for, for him. But also, it's a destabilizing factor for Tywin and Cersei in terms of pitting the Lannisters against each other. Because what happened? Cersei comes for Tyrion. And Tywin kind of is caught in the middle, but he's clearly going to side with what it looks like because Tywin's a man all about decorum and, and image. So, I, I mean, as he tells Jamie, well, it, it, everyone seems to think he murdered his, 
his uh, nephew in front of everybody. And the evidence really looks like that. And Tywin's not too big on going against common belief like that. He breaks traditions, not common belief. <laughs> so Littlefinger messing with the royal family has lots of benefits to him beyond just general chaos, beyond just stake-stealing Sansa. It creates a rift in the actual royal family that's going to result in, he thinks, Tyrion's death, but actually result in Tywin's death. And, well, Tyrion coming back near the front of Daenerys' army, most likely. So, yeah, a lot of this didn't quite go the way anyone thought it would, including Tyrion. But also, Joffrey's a loose end. What did we just get through saying about Joffrey being convinced by Littlefinger? We didn't, Littlefinger does not want Joffrey, years from now, just casually mentioning the things he talked about with Littlefinger or wising up and realizing what kind of man Littlefinger is. Joffrey doesn't want any of that happening. All take no chances, just get rid of him now. So there's a lot, a lot of reasons that Littlefinger would want Joffrey gone. And none of them are ones he wants to tell Sansa. So he says, chaos. Yeah, chaos, that's it. So there is some insane emotional blackmail towards Sansa here. He's like, look, I'm saving you. I'm the only one that can keep you safe. Yet I just helped pin murder on you. I just pinned regicide on you. <laughs> so by the way, you're going to have to take a secret identity. But, but I'm the only one that can protect you. God, it's so very, very... The argument falls apart so very quickly coming from him. But Sansa being anxious and shocked and 13 is not able to put it all into words so quickly. But as we see in her chapters later, she starts to figure it out. Not slowly, not slowly at all. But she'll also have other things to deal with because Sweet Robin and Marillion and Lysa. Oh boy, Lysa. Well, but we're not there yet. And note that this is still true. People are like, oh, it would have been better if she'd gone with the Tyrells. The Tyrells were trying to pin the murder on her too. <laughs> they, they agreed with Littlefinger. Littlefinger's creepier than they are. But they aren't exactly good guys here by any means. They're, they're all about power and Sansa. They were totally willing to throw her under the bus. Almost as much as Littlefinger. And here in this chapter too, it's a little creepy. Another reason for it to be creepy, Littlefinger reveals that he genuinely, quote, genuinely, meaning he believes it or he's just lying. We don't know for sure. He thinks he slept with, he says he slept with Lysa and Catelyn. It's not true. He definitely slept with Lysa, but Catelyn, no, definitely not. We know for sure Catelyn thinks of her own first time with, with her wedding night. And we also learned that <laughs> he thought Catelyn was coming to him, but it was Lysa coming to him again. Once after the feast at River Run, when he got drunk, and the second time was after the duel when he was injured. So, still, despite all the terribleness for Sansa, there are some silver linings. Let's at least mention those things. She doesn't know about Littlefinger's obsessions, which isn't a good thing, but it's at least not weighing on her, you know? She feels at least I'm not married to the family that married my family. And if she knew how bad Littlefinger really was, she'd have more to be anxious about, but it's at least a relief, stress-wise, temporarily. She also had less room to maneuver in King's Landing. There's people following her around, keeping track of her every movement, Kingsguard, people she doesn't trust. And Littlefinger, and, and people who aren't explaining things to her. You know, at least Littlefinger likes to explain things, at least. Even though he's lying, he's at least giving her something to work with. Tyrion, as we said, there were... Tyrion made attempts to talk to her. He made the wrong attempts. He probably didn't bring up the right kind of things. 
If he had talked strategy and gossip with her, it might have worked out, you know. But that's just not the way he route he took. And so she's learning the game from Littlefinger, not Tyrion. You know, for better or worse, a lot of her political education is going to come from Littlefinger, just like a lot of it came from Cersei, though it, it wasn't intended to be such. It is intended to be such from Littlefinger because he's kind of like, look, I'm going to share my secrets with you and groom you to be my you know, side by my side, helping me do all this stuff. It's ye. Some thoughts from y'all. Newt Rock 44 says there's also a vague parallel of when Dantos is running through the city with Sansa when the bells are tolling, like Patchface and Shireen running in the fool's bells of his helm ring. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Certainly there's the the idea of bells uh on a jester's head seems to be a recurring theme here. And that gives us really a lot to work with symbolically with, with things like this and Patchface being perhaps ominous things coming for him later or because of him, uh, thanks to Shireen's death or maybe not even related to that, but we'll see. Same deal with Dantos. And there's just so many of these fools that are actually kind of a, a part of the narrative by being so adjacent to these other major characters. As I said in the last chapter, Oswell Kettleblack, the one who picks up Sansa and Dantos at the shore in the rowboat to take them over to Littlefinger's ship, is the same man who hired Oppo and Penny. And of course, he's the father of Osni, Osfried, and Osmond. Ah, I think I got him all this time. <laughs> I didn't have it written down. That's, of course, a big deal, but we'll talk about him more later as well. I think he's a candidate to betray Littlefinger not for gain, but because all three of his sons are in deep doo-doo right now. And Littlefinger's not going to do anything about it, probably. A lot of people note how quickly Sansa figures things out here. Yeah, she is. She's, she's really quick on the, on the uptake with a lot of these things, although she, one glaring omission there is she's been a little too married to the idea of going home when she well knows her home was destroyed, which is so she, ha she maybe shouldn't have been able to figure out that Littlefinger was taking her to the Vale. But she should have at least been maybe questioning what exactly home means at this point because going to Winterfell isn't really possible. So I don't know. That's just 13-year-old girl part probably. But overall, she's very observant here. And it's just she just needs a little more time to think through some of these things. And we'll see her start making those moves in um, Wins of Winter and a little bit in A Feast for Crows. Stefan B. Wants, from Flick wants me to weigh in a little bit on Littlefinger's moves and how he says... If you make moves your opponents don't expect, you'll keep them guessing. And he wants me to talk about that in light of poker, because I used to be a professional poker player. And is that an accurate description of how people play poker? It is. It is absolutely an accurate description of how people play poker. Some people do it, get the concept wrong. They bluff too often. And thus, if you bluff too often, you people know you're a bluffer and they will call your bluffs. And if you bluff not often enough, they will know that you when you're betting, you have a real hand. So optimally, you bluff an, a certain amount of time that will keep your opponents not sure of how often your bluffing frequency is and how often you have a real hand. That's what you're aiming for. So it's exactly right what Littlefinger's saying is you keep them guessing. You, if you are too predictable, you'll be beatable. And it's, it's very true. There is a lot of poker in politics when you get into these metaphors, but I'll, I'd be happy to answer more poker-related politics questions, but I think that settles it for now. Stephanie the Peerless was a good question that I had not considered. Sansa notices the chain still there. I mean, I don't know why they would take it down. So it makes sense that it's still there. But she wonders if it'll matter again. 
Yeah, I do too. I never really thought about that. It could it could be raised again for some reason. It could come into play. I don't know. It's hard to imagine the exact circumstances, but hey, it was Stannis is a proto Danny. A lot of things Danny is going to do are going to echo things Stannis did or already did. And maybe there'll be an invasion of King's Landing with ships and maybe the chain will be raised again. Who knows? I would be surprised if it doesn't ever matter again at all. Let's put it that way. Littlefinger says to Sansa something that I find hilarious, something that may also lead to his undoing even more directly. He says, the Godswood is the only safe place from Varys and his whispers. Okay, first of all, I don't even think that's true. The Varys could, you know, as we see, Wex hides in a weirwood tree and overhears planning <laughs> from Asha and Lewin and, and the split of Bran and Rickon. So... People can hide in trees. However, that's not really the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is the trees listen. The godswood listens. Bran may see the stuff with the dagger and may see the stuff with Sansa and may be the one to fully, to fill out the picture of Littlefinger later that enables the Starks to have enough evidence to move against him, to have him executed, who knows? And it, meaning that Bran's Werewood visions may assist in the outing of Littlefinger. Though I don't think it's necessary to. I think the show did that without needing to. I think that Littlefinger's own actions are quite enough. Thank you very much. But we'll see. We'll see. Very curious about that. And now, our last chapter of the day, Jamie Seven, the one with sex by a corpse, aka the Bachelord Commander Jamie Edition. An extremely dark chapter, really. Honestly, I think it's way darker than the, than the Purple Wedding. Not only do we have the events listed in the title and an uncomfortable argument with Tywin, but we haven't had a Jamie chapter since before the Red Wedding. Which means, well, that means we have to have these characters in this chapter react to both Red and Purple Weddings. The last Jamie chapter was Bear Pit. Big dream, right? That was a while ago, huh? <laughs> That's be just before the chapter where Catelyn and Rob talk about Rob's will. So we're way past that. In this one, he and Brienne, like I said, have to react to these events. And well, here's how it starts. Quote. The king is dead, they told him, never knowing that Joffrey was his son as well as his sovereign. On the road from Hall, they heard about the Red Wedding. And when they arrive at King's Landing, they hear about the Purple. Makes sense. Again, I must remind you all, since we're talking about them both side by side, the Purple Wedding is a fan term. It's not said anywhere in the books. Red Wedding is said in the books. That is the official in-world nickname for it. Purple Wedding is something that we fans made up. So just keep that straight. Not a big deal, but good to know. He, meaning Jamie, thinks back to hearing about the Red Wedding with Brienne and them at a place called Brindlewood from a knight of House Beesbury. Fitting, I suppose, because the news stings. Mm, yeah. Brienne, though, not Jamie so much. He didn't, he's like, oh, wow, Rob Stark dead. That is big news, but he's not sad about it. He's not kind or unkind about it to Brienne, really. He just kind of, well, states the simple truth, something we've been saying for a while in a variety of ways about how these power games work and how predatory they are. And here's a good example of that in this quote we've got here, talking about how, well, how people come for weakness. My father had the Reigns in Tarbex. The Tyrells have the Florence. Hoster Tully had Walder Frey. Only strength keeps such men in their place. The moment they smell weakness during the Age of Heroes, the Boltons used to flay the Starks and wear their skins as cloaks. Exactly. That's what happened to Rob. The weakness was smelled. We talked about that a lot at the time. And they, they jumped on it. Same thing here. 
People jumping on weakness, capitalizing on it, taking it for themselves. George uses vivid descriptions of color in particular as a device to help us imagine what we're seeing, but he also uses it as, as for thematic patterns. Well, thematically, sometimes as part of patterns, sometimes the themes aren't patterns, they're just themes, but sometimes it's both. Quote, It was poison did the deed, the innkeep insisted. The boy's face turned black as a plum. That's very much a description of what the black amethysts look like. So dark purple, they almost look black. And well, that's pretty much what a plum, a black plum looks like. They're just a little bit purple. They're dark, dark, dark purple. And it's interesting here too that the small folk don't seem to be terribly bothered by this either. They're like a little bit like on the outside anyway, like Jamie. Internally, Jamie's having a little more thoughts about it. But later the narrative is going to be twisted when with Tyrion's trial about the populace being up in arms about their sweet murdered king. Like people are going to be saying, look, people are mad. Everyone's mad at you, Tyrion, for killing the king. And it's not really true. <laughs> it doesn't seem to be, people don't seem to be that bothered by it. I mean, Joffrey didn't really have a legacy. He wasn't well known. And the Lannisters aren't popular. So there's just that too. But yeah, Jamie doesn't really care that much either. It, it makes sense that he'd think more about the Purple Wedding more than the Red Wedding because it's more relevant to him. And, and he just found out about it right when this chapter st- begins. But his, and he does think about Joffrey, but it's mostly just negative stuff or not caring. And like, for example, out of all the memories we've been through in the last six Jamie chapters, all the inner monologues and musings about knighthood, oaths, family pressure, heirs, Brienne, Tyrion, Cersei, 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 lots of Cersei. Fatherhood's barely come up at all, right? It, isn't, it just isn't a big part of his character. Again, this guy's not on a redemption arc. You could call it a semi-redemption arc, I think, but redemption means redeeming the things you did. He is, doesn't think about Bran that much at all. He doesn't really think about the harm he's done. He's really more just trying to be a better person going forward, although this chapter is not an example of it. <laughs> not at all. This is a little bit of backsliding, which is kind of, maybe it's an example, George, showing us two steps forward, one step back. But it's still, I don't think, going to result in a full redemption. It may not even get close, actually, if the show is any indication. But with Jamie, it's more of he's just not the man he was. He's changed. He's different. And the man he is now is a lot better person. He's got some honor. Maybe he even has a lot of honor. Not in this chapter, but what he's growing into. Still, unless he specifically makes good on the things he did wrong in the past, that's not really redemption. That's just turning a new leaf, right? Which is still a good thing, but, you know, trying to be clear here. So how many times, Joe looked this up, how many times does the word Joffrey come up in Jamie's first six chapters? Three is the answer. One of them is part of Brienne's dialogue. Another was him just popping up in the Weirwood dream. An aspect of the dream Jamie does not give further consideration to, by the way. If we need further proof, there's this quote, he tried to bring the boy's face to mind, but his features kept turning him into Cersei. Joe has a really brilliant take here. Jamie is thinking of Joffrey as an extension of Cersei. It's all about Cersei, and Joffrey's just a piece of that. And with him being gone, fine, that's just it. He's just how he thinks of Joffrey's death and how it will affect Cersei. He doesn't think about Joffrey and how sad that is. He thinks about her and how that Im- how it's going to impact her. He's the Joffrey's the MacGuffin to affect Cersei's behavior. He's not a person 
in this, in this exercise. Further evidence of his own thoughts and him thinking through this comes as the ride continues. Quote, Men were supposed to go mad with grief when their children died, he knew. They were supposed to tear their hair out by the roots, to curse the gods and swear red vengeance. So why was it that he felt so little? He pictured Joff lying still and cold with a face black from poison and still felt nothing. Perhaps he was the monster they claimed. If the father above came down to offer him back his son or his hand, Jamie knew which he would choose. So he is thinking about it a lot, but he's just thinking about how he's beating him, maybe maybe not beating himself up, but mm, a little bit maybe. Mostly he's a little, I think he's just puzzled. But also he's a mix of other emotions because he's just gotten back to King's Landing after so long and he's so ready to see Cersei. And that is really filling him with a lot of pathos that's affecting everything he's thinking about. Like this, like how he's making Joffrey's death about Cersei. But it also affects how he sees Brienne. We've used the analogy like an addiction for Jamie and Cersei. And it's somewhat fitting. It's somewhat not fitting because there's so many things different about love than drug addiction. But arguably, this isn't love at all. It is some sort of thing that Jamie needs for himself that isn't better, that's better called something other than love. But it is certainly a strong feeling, whatever it is. And it's overwhelming him. And he, it takes him kind of back. Like I said, it's a backsliding a bit. He starts to think again of Brienne in some of the same negative ways he thought of her at first and just kind of childish, like, oh, I'm so sick of her. She's ugly and boring and all this other stuff. Now, it's very unsympathetic because Brienne's, the reason she's become a bad traveling companion is because she's deeply affected by the Red Wedding. And so Jamie just has no sympathy for that, which is not a great look for him. So really, it's part of these bookending of chapters. Jamie's about to barge in on Cersei and sleep with her next to their son's corpse, even though he just got through thinking about how it's going to affect her. And Tyrion doesn't look so good in that chapter with Shay. So we have these bookend chapters with sex in weird places, skulls and, you know, steps next to dead bodies. It's also when two of these Lannister kids look about as bad as they ever do. Well, let's be honest. Tyrion looks worse later. But as bad as they've looked to this point. <laughs> Jamie only starts, mostly just starts to look better after this. <laughs> Not entirely, but mostly. So... If we're trying to get in Brienne's head a little bit, though, we should, because this is something about this chapter that I really that I really like. Even though I call it dark, that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Song of Ice and Fire very often challenges us to put ourselves in someone else's place. I think it's a legitimately valuable aspect to the series, these lessons in perspective, where this is the practice of putting yourself in someone else's shoes, someone else's place, even if it's a fictional person, it's still an exercise that opens your mind up to that, I think, in the real world. And if you're someone that's good at that in the real world, then you're probably particularly solid on this aspect of analysis when you're reading. In this chapter, it's particularly fascinating to do because for one, a lot of it is called for and a lot of it is uncomfortable. Later in this chapter, we have Tywin's perspective on quite a lot as he reunites with Jamie. And putting yourself in Tywin's shoes is a serious challenge and not necessarily pleasant either. He's thinking about power dynamics. You wonder, is Tywin thinking about, did I, should I have seen this Joff murder coming? Should I have, did I know, maybe he knew it was coming? No, probably not that. But who knows what Tywin's thinking? But it's interesting to put yourself in his mind and think strategically. 
Uh, the emotions are like, yeah, that's rough to try to think about what Tywin's feeling because he comes off as so unfeeling. But still, Cersei, she's not unfeeling. She just has dangerous feelings, toxic feelings. I mean, considering her perspective in this chapter, talk about awkward, thinking about what it's like to be a mother having sex next to your dead son. Like, who wants to go there? But also, she's having this great sense of relief because she wasn't sure Jamie was alive and she missed him so badly. She's, I mean... They're a unit. They're, a, a, they're together. They've gone, been through so much together. As much as I declare their relationship toxic and a thing that should not be, that doesn't erase the feelings they have for each other. That doesn't change the uniqueness of this a, a, a thing. It doesn't change how impossible it is for us to truly put ourselves in their place too. Most of us, well, not most of us, many of us don't even have a sibling, let alone a twin sibling. Most of us do not have a twin sibling let alone having a physical relationship with a sibling who's your twin. Like that's, I, I, I'm guessing nobody listening has that. <laughs> and if you do, you probably still aren't able to place this rationally because it's a totally different setting. You're probably not super rich. You're probably not close to the kingdom, etc. There's just so much that is impossible to understand about Cersei's perspective here. I wonder if that's part of why George made her POV. The other part being that She's the only one in King's Landing as a POV pretty soon. So that's, that's probably a bigger part. But hey, it's both. Now, when it comes to Brienne, though, that's where you can feel sympathy because we like Brienne and we, well, that's it because we like Brienne. <laughs> Trying to put yourself in her place is hard too and painful because she's forced out of her, uh, she's faced with failing to protect Lady Catelyn, she, she took a vow to her and now, well, she wasn't there. I mean, it's not her fault, but you know how these types of people think. Someone who takes duty very seriously isn't going to be like, oh, well, I couldn't have done anything about it. I wasn't there. That's not how Brienne thinks. She's like, I could have done more. I could have been there. I should have been there. That's how her mind's going to operate. She's going to think about what she could have done differently. She's not going to put blame on other people. She's going to start with herself. And, but she's forced out of this understandable dejection with, his, with this confrontation with Loras Tyrell, who is also someone whose perspective is very unique and interesting. Loras feels the same responsibility of failure in not protecting Renly that Bren Brienne feels. They were both Rainbow Guardsmen. But with the massive extra weight that relates a little bit to what we're talking about with Jamie and Cersei, a hidden relationship that people can't speak to, but readers can, Loras lost the only person he ever loved romantically and physically. Well, probably, probably the only person he ever loved. And he's a big, interesting part of this chapter, a character that hasn't really been a big part of the narrative too much, but is going to be a bigger part going forward for a little while. And I think he's a pretty interesting guy. A little quote here, the night of flowers shone so fine and pure in his white scales and silk that Jamie felt a tattered and tawdry thing by contrast. Yeah, well, that's interesting because Jamie and Loras are, have a lot in common. And Jamie sees Loras as the younger version of himself kind of taking his place and that's something we'll be seeing more of as they interact. But Jamie is also learning what he, how he used to look to other people. He's like, wow, was I this cocky? Yeah, I guess I was. And Jamie's also forced to deal with things in a different way than Loris is. Loris is like Jamie in that he thinks with his sword first. Well, Jamie can't do that anymore. And so Jamie's going to start having to think about ways to make contributions to the King's Guard and to order and to being a good person via means other than his sword. 
So Joe argues that Loras being in the Kingsguard is a good thing for Jamie because it gives him this mirror to look into and, and reclaim some of his own attitudes and to modify his thinking on things that he realizes he was doing wrong before. Joe Buckley says, I think we can all agree Sir Balon Swan is a pretty top bloke as they come. And he proves it again here by being the first to step up and tell Loras, listen to, Lord, listen to the Lord Commander. I think that's a good take. I agree. Out of all the Kingsguard, it's not going to be Boros Blunt or Marin Trant or, you know, uh, I was about to say Mandon Moore, but that dude's dead. <laughs> so yeah, Balon Swan is one of the better ones. And this is, George uses these small opportunities to reinforce these small character moments and, and give a little more personality here. That said, I, I think that after this confrontation, Brienne sending, being sent to a tower cell, that seems unfair to me. I, Jamie, maybe he's doing it to protect Brienne, to keep Loras from doing something stupid. And, you know, with Loras's powerful family around, you never know what, what that could, could mean. But Loras has no real charge here. What's, what is he charging her with? The killing of Renly? But Renly was a traitor. Renly was an officially in a traitor at arms with an army. What crime is that exactly? <laughs> it's not one, as far as I know. However, killing the two other Rainbow Guard <laughs> that were innocent, as, as Loras himself did, Eamon Kai and Robar Royce, that might be. I don't, I, arguably it isn't either. But if it's not, then neither is Renly. So Loras has no leg to stand on here. And he says something that is part of what helps him change his mind later. He says... The only other person in the tent was Lady Catelyn. So who else could have cut through that steel gorget? You know, this, this old woman, you're the only one there who could have done it. But then later he's like, actually, I couldn't do it. The mountain would have needed a heavy axe to do that. He checks the steel and he's like, man, this, this steel is cut like it was fabric. And even an axe wouldn't have done this and it wouldn't be such a smooth cut. So he starts to have major, major doubts and that's also when he starts to realize that maybe he killed Eamon Kai and Robar Royce and shouldn't have. And not long after that, he becomes a little bit aggressive with his, send me into this really, really, really dangerous mission. So he might be, this may all tie to that. Him realizing he killed two innocent knights and wants to atone for it by doing great, epic, glorious, violent, dangerous deeds like taking Dragonstone via storm. Some people think maybe that didn't even happen. But hey, that's getting ahead of ourselves. More on Loras later and more on Dragonstone later. Back to Jamie and Brienne here, or Jamie and Cersei rather. Here's an important quote when Cersei first sees him. She rose, her eyes brimming with tears. Is it truly you? She did not come to him, however. She has never come to me, he thought. She has always waited, letting me come to her. She gives, but I must ask, must ask. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a power dynamic. It seems that Cersei is the stronger one in the relationship in terms of the relationship itself. And she does have the more forceful personality, the more outgoing temperament. She has more ambition. Jamie's ambition has always just been to be a swordsman. Now that's changing, but I wouldn't call him ambitious. And as much as love and passion might be a part of their relationship, there's also this, these power games. And these same games that they play with other people too, not just themselves. It's just that they've been playing it their own version, their own very, very distinct and unique version they've been playing for much longer and with nobody else involved. So Cersei is kind of like, maybe you could say she's trying to set a tone. 
She wants to make sure she still has power over Jamie, sexual power and regular power. And by having him come to her, she sort of maintains that a bit. Now, by literally coming to him, of course, there's times when she travels to him or sneaks into his chamber and stuff like that. This is, that's not really a power dynamic thing, I don't think. Maybe you could argue it, part, it, it is partly. But mostly, I think this, I like Joe's take here in, in saying that Cersei kind of runs the relationship more than Jamie does. Obviously, Jamie has some hand in the relationship, to use a Seinfeld phrase. Only one now. But certainly, Cersei seems to uh, have more in charge most of the time. So in terms of this scene, George R. R. Martin uh, has weighed in on this version versus the TV show's version, which without going into great detail, it's just a matter of presentation. A lot of it is you're inside Jamie's head and that changes a lot of things. And then later you're in Cersei's head when she thinks back on it a bit. There's a few other moments here I want to point to. A little quote, they address the dead king in gilded armor eerily similar to Jamie's own. Yeah. Uh, maybe a bit of a uh, symbolism of Jamie's metaphorical death because he's changing into a new man. And also, of course, there's different symbolism here relating to Jamie's thinking about how his lack of connection to Joffrey and how he looks so similar to him, but they just have no connection. There's another quote here. Kinslaying was worse than Kingslaying in the eyes of gods and men. He knew the boy was mine. I love Tyrion. Meaning... Jamie is struggling with the idea that if Tyrion killed Joffrey, well, wait, why would Tyrion do that? I'm, Tyrion likes me, and he knows I like Joffrey, so why would Tyrion do someone that I love? And if Tyrion knows Jamie's son is Joffrey, then Jamie is confronted with the notion that his beloved brother just killed his son which we know Tyrion didn't do it. But still, that's a big thing for Jaime to be told. And that's why he doesn't accept it immediately. And Cersei says, I'll show you the, I'll show you the, the evidence later. And then they start to, you know, start kissing. And then it goes from there. This is a, a big part of the power dynamic that they talked about, that we brought up earlier. Cersei is adamant and thinks Jaime is crazy when he brings up the idea of making their relationship public. So Jamie doesn't care what people think. So that's why he's okay with it. Cersei doesn't necessarily care what people think in terms of being insulted or being mocked, but it would kill her power. And that she can't have. As she says, Tommen's throne derives from Robert. And that's, yeah. If, if Jamie and Cersei go public with their relationship, then all the incest rumors about Joffrey and Robert, and, uh, Tommen's parentage come out and they lose their throne. I mean, on one hand, you can see that's where Cersei's head is at. On the other hand, Jamie's being a bit of a weirdo and just brushing that off. <laughs> like, you know that she's not just going to accept this. I, all I want is you. Yeah, okay. But it's not just as simple as pushing everything else aside. Yeah. And also, Jamie's a little delusional in thinking that when he says, let father sit the throne. That is, I don't know about that, but I have another thought on it because it might be, Tywin may have started thinking that way himself, not directly, but as we'll see here in a minute, when he talks to his father, his father suggests marrying Marjorie to Jamie instead of to Tommen. 
which of course the Tyrells wouldn't go for that. They want that marriage to the throne. That's, that's crucial. But with these two ideas together, if Tywin's thinking of trying to brush them off and marry Marjorie to Jamie and rule through Tommen, well, this does maybe fit with the idea of Tywin sitting the throne himself. I don't think that's terribly likely, but it's worth consideration. It's just interesting that Jamie brings it up also. Here's another uh, small, subtle moment that when, when Shay and, or when Shay is brought up indirectly, meaning Sansa Stark's maids are brought up, saying Cersei has them in captivity and they need to be questioned. Well, this is probably when that deal with Shay happens. When you go up to talk to her and, and she's all afraid and thinks she's implicated, maybe. Cersei probably made it sound like she was implicated. Probably tried to scare her in a number of ways and got her to offer to testify. Now, as for Shay and Brella, I got to bring Brella back up again. Brella's the one, if you recall, who mentioned to Sansa that the castles were, the cloud castles were ruined and that she's the one who was supposedly blind, deaf, and mute, not literally, but was a good manager of a household because she managed Renly's household and none of those secrets spilled. And we may know this because of, like I said, Varys is involved. Now, Brella continues to be relevant, like I said. She is ends up working at a low-end brothel because no one wants to hire her because two different households she was in, the people had awful things happen. So they think she's cursed or something. And, but she still has information. So Brienne goes and finds her. And Brella gives her information that leads her to Dantos. And then Podrick comes to Brella and Podrick gets information from Brella that leads him to Brienne. Yeah. Brella being important. All right. Now the final moment of the chapter, the final scene of the chapter, which is the confrontation with Tywin. It starts like this. Lord Tywin pushed himself out of his chair, breath hissing between his teeth. Who did this? If Lady Catelyn thinks... <laughs> thinks? You mean thought, Tywin. Lady Catelyn is quite dead. You had a hand in that, if you recall. <laughs> and you know that she's gone. So... Interestingly, this is perhaps the most emotional we see Tywin just jumping out of his chair, reacting. Usually he's so very composed. He was more composed to Joffrey's death. I mean, anyway. And it's so hypocritical here because he's, if Lady Catelyn did it, it's like, no, it was Vargo Hote, the guy you hired and brought to Westeros. And he still doesn't, you know, cop to any responsibility for that. But he does say he wants to kill them. And he says that every single one of them will hang. And this is a good example of when Tywin, of the dichotomy between Tywin's ability to predict things and his ability to read people. Like Littlefinger, he understands logistics and desperation and what people will do when they have little else they can do. He understands politics. He understands power games. He does not understand people's emotions and relationships and things like that. So when he says... They'll make for the ports, I'll warrant, or try to lose themselves in the woods. Referring to the brave companions who are now on the run. He's completely right. That's exactly, literally, what the ones Brienne chases do. They first go for a port. When the ports don't pan out, they go into the woods at Crackclaw Point. Also looking for another ship, but that's because they were misled by Nimble Dick. Uh, but there are still other brave companions still on the loose even now, even uh, where the books are now. And of course, Tywin will not be the one to, to corral them. But Jamie might. Jamie might. We'll see. So Tywin's really 
focused on re- the revenge aspect of this because those brave companions have no, there's no real power to them anymore. This is also the chapter where he reveals that Vargo Hote's arms and legs or hands and feet have been chopped off by Gregor and uh, soon enough he'll be dead. Jamie tries to turn the investigation or this rather the conversation to his investigation. It's, it's interesting because J- Jamie wants to talk, uh, rather Tywin wants to talk about all these other things but he doesn't bring up Joffrey. Jamie brings up Joffrey. He's like, don't, isn't that something we should be talking about here? <laughs> because Tywin is trying to give Jamie the sword, <laughs> Oathkeeper, before they even talk about Joffrey's death. And he's like, hang on on the gift, dad. Let's talk about this thing that's far more pressing. And Jamie knows the trial will be a farce. He's like, this trial cannot possibly be fair to Tyrion. And Tyrants is the most straight-faced hypocritical thing, which you, something you hear in the real world a lot. He says, if he's innocent, he has nothing to worry about. Oh, please. <laughs> there are so many people in this world now and long ago who have been accused of crimes and it's messed their life or damaged their life, even though they were innocent. And they were right to worry about it ahead of time. And Tyrion is a perfect example. He has everything to worry about. He did not do this, but it is being pinned on him and it's going to look like he did. Also kind of an inversion here that Jaime is refusing Casterly Rock and Tywin's kind of pushing it on him and he doesn't want it. And Tyrion does. (laughs) So, whoops. Yeah, the things Tywin expects Jaime to care. This is what I was getting at with the emotional stuff. He's very off base with what he expects Jaime to care about. The thing that bothers him most about all these things that Tywin rattles off, the sword, about Joffrey, about Tyrion, about marriage. That's the big one in particular is these marriages. Marrying Cersei to Oberyn Martell, that's the thing he yells out. He's like, no, 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 I'm sick of this. Oberyn Martell? You know, that's the, the thing that, of all the things that bother him, that's the one that comes to his lips first. So Tywin is ruthless, even in his choices, for his most favored children. I mean, Oberyn is a terrible idea for a husband for any Lannister. <laughs> and he's just not thinking about Cersei's well-being at all here. I mean, Oberyn wants revenge, and yeah, like, what? <laughs> it's, again, thinking that he can buy them off. He thinks that the bribe of his daughter, who is connected to this most powerful family, connected to the throne, will be enough to get them to set aside their revenge, which is a deep, deep misunderstanding of how people react and care about things like revenge. You can't really. There's a lot of people who will, can't buy them off no matter what. Like you could give them, you could offer them all the golden castle rock, literally, and they still wouldn't, and it still wouldn't be enough. And that comes back to my older point about the Targaryens. The Targaryens had real threat of violence. They had real danger they could, they could imply to people with is their dragons. Even Tywin Lannister and his reigns of Castamere can't frighten people to that degree. He can't, he does not have that in his arsenal. So, well, to be fair to Oberyn, he did say something about betting a beautiful blonde woman, but <laughs> I do not think he would uh, have a good marriage to Cersei. Now, t- another example of Tywin just getting it wrong here is Tywin, when Jamie's like, Marjorie, I don't want to marry Marjorie. I don't want to marry Joffrey's widow. And he, Tywin's like, but they insist she's still maiden. <laughs> I don't think he's that concerned about, I mean, he's a little concerned about that probably, but it's his nephew's widow in his mind. It's his son's widow. You know, still, that's just, why would you just throw that out there, Tywin, without considering it more? 
And again, of course, it's a separation from Cersei. He doesn't want to be married to someone that's going to be in a castle far away from where Cersei is. Nina points out another piece of hypocrisy, hypocrisy from Tywin. Apocryphy? Tywin confirms with Jamie that Jamie can still swing a sword with his left hand. Then Jamie then says, you can't serve in the king's guard without a sword hand. <laughs> it's like, wait, I just told you I could use my sword still. So again, it's just Tywin trying to have it both ways, even on in, even in little things like this. Tywin wants to buy off Jamie's vow from the High Septon. Another example of money. Trying to, and, and it calls back to that huge Septon's crown, the double-sized crown that they replaced the shattered one with. This is a contrast to Rob Stark and John's vows. When Rob was thinking, maybe I need to make John my heir and free him from his Night's Watch vows, his thinking was, I'll send them a hundred men. That will give them something they need. Meanwhile, Tywin's like, We'll, we'll give the High Septon enough money. He'll let you out of your Kingsguard vow. And Jamie says, no, tradition. We want to keep that tradition. It's a good tradition. Let's keep it. Tywin says, no, the tradition's broken. Cersei already broke it. It was a bad idea to break it, but eh, now that it's broken, why don't we keep doing it? And Jamie says, what a terrible attitude is that? Why not close the door and reestablish the tradition? We could be the ones to do that. It will look good on us if we do that. But Tywin's completely uninterested in any of that. Yeah. So another little connection here too, Nina notes, Jamie was present for the birth of Joffrey, which is, makes Jamie look a little worse in my eyes because he was there for the birth. And again, it was just, he was there for Cersei. He did not care about this child. It's, it's another, that's what it says to me. But it also is a parallel to Rhaenyra and Harwin Strong. Harwin Strong was said to be present for at least the birth of Prince Lucerys, who now we are left to wonder what kind of connection he had to his sons that were not allowed to be called his sons, because this is a strong parallel of your closest guard having kids with you and when you're the queen, and those kids having their parentage questioned as part of a civil war. Hello, similarities, and Rhaenyra's fierceness and paranoia are definitely an echo of Cersei's. So this is a great parallel. Then you wonder, yeah, you wonder what Harwin, speaking of perspective, let's jump back 200 years and think about what Harwin was thinking about, as well as Rhaenyra. And here's a funny kind of moment. One of the most blatant examples of Renly's sexuality. And remember, in the books, it's a lot more subtle. The show just was like, here you go. We're not going to be subtle, which isn't a bad thing, but the books are subtle about it, but this is not subtle. Now, sheath your bloody sword or I'll take it from you and shove it up someplace even Renly never found. Ooh, that's, of course, directed at Loras. <laughs> that's, that's a memorable line. That's a memorable line for sure. So, thank you for the super chats. Thank you for the support. Thank you for the comments. And we are through another batch of chapters. Last week... 179 minutes, 39 seconds covered. This week, 162.24. So far, 202, sorry, 2,167 and 44 of 2,853.37. So oh, a little less than 700 minutes left. Like I said, about three quarters of the way through the book. I guess that we would actually pass the three quarters of mark technically through this, this very last chapter just now. You can always check the video length and compare it to the podcast length to get a sense of how much we edit out to make it a little tighter, a little more presentable. Will my ums and uhs taken out, some of the pauses and things like that. 
some of the extra times when I say like or you know or so. Cut some of that out. Or when I stumble with my words in other ways. So far, you can tell too, with as far as the progress of the book, it really appears in the way these POVs are coming out. We've already had Kat's final chapter ever, Bran's final chapter in this book. Next time we'll start with Davos's final chapter of the book, which is Davos 6. Edric gets on a boat because of the implication, aka the one where Lightbringer is a reading man. Then we have John 8. The gang defends the wall, aka the one with Donald Noy versus Mag the Mighty. Aria 12, the one where the hound is a handyman, aka, wait a minute, I changed that title. Hang on back up. Biggly, 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 biggly. Mm. The one where the hound is a giant. I can't remember what I called it. It's in relation to the hound building the wall, or the one where the hound builds the wall, or something like that, aka Wolf Dreams of Cat. Tyrion 9, the gang reignites the rivalry, a.k.a. the one where Tyrion can't find witnesses. And Jamie 8, Storytime, the White Book, a.k.a. Lord Commander Kingslayer takes charge. In this episode, I'm trying to start... I mentioned the Blackfire series, and I'm trying to start at the end of every Valor Reedus mention any of our scripted episodes that we referred to in case people want to go deeper with any of those particular lines of thought or plot lines, whatever you want to call it. So I did mention the Blackfire series. I don't think I mentioned any of the other ones this time, but that one in itself is many, many episodes. Thanks again to anyone who came live. Thanks to anyone who submitted questions. Thanks to Ashea for being the best. Thanks to Joe Buckley and Nina Friel for their significant amount of input. More than usual, I'd say. Oh, look at this. Thanks to thanks to Casanova for, for getting in my lap in this last moment. <laughs> thanks, too, for, to Claradox, uh, D.DE, for the intro and for our great maps behind. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valeritas intro music specifically. Thanks to Joey Kowal and Jesse Townsend for our... Wait, I do that every time, or a lot. Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal. I mix their names up. Sorry, guys. You guys wrote our theme music and and our outtake theme music, respectively, and we really appreciate that. Benjineer is the man for making our podcast sound better. I do the actual editing of the comments and taking out of the ums and uhs, and he makes it sound good. And thanks to our patrons who provide financial viability for the podcast and YouTube series that we do. We'll have much more to come as always, and we appreciate you enabling us to do that. So for everyone else, thank you very much. Make sure to like and share and subscribe and all that standard podcast YouTube business. And we'll see you next time for more Valar Rereads.